0: everyone and welcome to the guidepost uh, Tony here uh, I am not going to be the host today so all of you can uh, can can thank the good Lord for that um, we have our guest host Blaine chocolate this is going to be one of chocolate's game changer episodes and he has a real special guest that I'll let Blaine and in, Blaine introduce here in a second but I just wanted to say as always um, if you enjoy this podcast, and you have any questions, uh, send those questions into comments at saltwaterguidesassociation.org. And if we read them on the air, you will win yourself a new Paracostas. So, uh, again, comments at saltwaterguidesassociation.org. And this is a super, super cool podcast. This is all going to be about what fish see and hear. From a learned man who has spent a good chunk of his life studying these things at the highest hallowed law walls, you you guys can't see him, but I can. He has tons of leather bound books beside him that validate his expertise, and we are super super excited uh, to talk about to totally geek out on how you can use science to catch fish better. So, without further ado. You are done hearing my voice. Blaine, take it away, my friend. Thank you,
1: Tony. Well, we do have a special guest today, uh, a friend of mine for probably 20 years now, Dr. Andre Horodiski, marine science expert, uh, expert in how fish see and vision and in sound. Um, I guess I I met Andre some (sighs) uh, close to 20 years ago, maybe even longer maybe 25 years ago, uh, through a mutual friend who was a, um, a aquatic entomologist um, at uh, Roanoke College who's now retired. And, uh, you know, it kind of put us in a path together where both of us at the time were um, fly designers for Uncle Feather Merchants. Um, Andre not only is a PhD and whatnot, but he, he's also a, a wonderful angler, studies fish behavior, not only in his work, but on his on his off time, um, designing flies for Umqua, Um, and, uh, I cannot wait to get into the stuff we're going to get into. Andre, thanks for joining us, man.
2: Blaine, thank you for having me. It's been, like you said, exactly about 20 years since I uh, met you in the middle of the Jackson River, Jackson Tailwater. Um, and it's been a real honor to fish with you over the years and to watch you change, game change the fly fishing industry. You know, I've, I've said this before of you, I've said it to you, I've said it of you more uh, more often than than, uh, than once a day, I guess, uh, that Blaine Chocolate's one of those hallowed fly tires we'll talk about through eternity. Blaine has not only changed the industry, but he's opened access, he's crushed boundaries, he's knocked down walls, he's let fly fishermen really be extremely creative by not only creating new styles of tying, but by creating the very materials to tie with pushing the boundaries of what you can do with the vice and certainly inspires me every single day. I mean, the stuff he opens is, I don't, I don't know if I get to see the special boxes, but I get to see stuff. Lane shows me stuff that a lot of people don't get to see and it just blows my mind. So this is a real honor to chat with one of my heroes. Uh, So thank you for the opportunity. Wow.
1: I don't really don't know what to say there, man, but uh, I'm honored that you feel that way. And, um, you know, I, I feel the same about you, man. You, you know, you, you've been very open with me over the years and, uh, help me when I have problems, you know, Bob Popovics told me years ago, a great fly design comes from solving problems and you've been a great sounding board. You know, when I've had, you know, when I was dealing with muskies way back when and trying to figure out what made them tick, uh, you, you you being in that field and understanding fish behavior, fish vision, uh, and the sound stuff, it's, it's to me, you're my hero on that one because I've, I've been able to, understand fish behavior a whole lot better through your eyes and what you've seen. And it's all about, for me, observation on the water. And you, not only that for you on the water, but also in what I would say your uh, laboratory, right? So um, uh, Andre, he's, he's, he's published, he's written a, a bunch of articles on, on many different uh, topics. But one of the things that he, he showed me years ago was on fish vision and um we are going to get into all that kind of stuff but um the one thing that's always fascinating to me is a lot of your work has been in saltwater and around saltwater um and you live in virginia near the virginia coast and whatnot but your passion and always has been is freshwater cold water trout and that's that's been a big part of your fly designs and if you're not if you've never seen a lot of his designs he ties beautiful flies he puts a lot of thought into it based on the science that he studies and uh it's just funny how my passion being in the mountains where the trout are is in the coast now. And you're on the coast and you want to be up here where I am. <laughs> so let's talk let's talk about let's talk about your fly designs with Umclaw, because they are amazing. I mean, the nitrous stuff, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I was when I first saw those that using that that braid or whatever it's called, I can't remember what it's called right now. I mean, I was captivated by it because it has and we're gonna get into this too. Um we're gonna get into Getting rid of voodoo and fishing, um, and I say that because Bob, uh, Larry Dahlberg, not dropping names or anything, but he he's been a huge inspiration to me. He and Bob Popovics are kind of the guys that's kind of uh, narrowed my path. But I walked through a went, a doorway and not looking through a soda straw, like like Larry always talks about. And you want you want to get through the voodoo and get to what's really going on, and and having an open mind and and not looking through a keyhole is very important and this is going to probably upset people today at probably in certain certain things because i think we're going to get rid of a lot of myths that are that are in what how fish react and see things and 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 to me in my designs and i know with you as well a lot of it has to do with uh triggering qualities right and attracting qualities so there's a lot of that that's built into not how fish survive and eat their foods right so let's talk a little bit about your designs uh that you have with trout and i know you're working on some other things and warm water and salt water as well but uh the thing i know you and am very fond of is how passionate you are about trout you know Mm -hmm. and uh you know that's a lot of us in in fly fishing get started with you know either panfish or whatnot but trout is kind of like still the main thing in fly fishing right now, i know that's your what you're super passionate about last time we yeah, spoke so, anyway
2: so i grew up in central jersey Bordentown, town just south of trenton which is you know new jersey's got trout but it's not a trout mecca so you, you don't list it in your top 10 states right so i did a little bit of trout fishing but it was mostly stocked fish and, and sort of in the central jersey area but i had access to a lot of bluegills and bass and um Matter of fact, first time I ever saw a fly fisherman, I was out staring at my bobber with a worm underneath it with my grandfather, my father's father, who taught me how to fish at age three. And we're sitting on a lake, and I'm staring at this bobber kind of boringly sitting in the water. And here comes this older Italian fellow uh, at 830 in the morning, throws a popper right at the boat ramp, and he's constantly moving. He's catching fish, way more fish than I did all day, just in about an hour, and he's always doing something. And I thought to myself, that's the way to do this. He's, he's covering water. He knows something I don't. And he would just show up every day I was fishing. One or two days a week, my grandfather could sneak me out and go. He was always there. And so he eventually taught me how to cast a popper. And eventually I got my own fly rod. And, you know, I think I fished 50-pound tests so I wouldn't lose flies. Orvis had a big eye ant pattern at the time that I was able to force the 50-pound test through. And, And I put it in the tree. I just rip it out. You know, the hooks would bend. I'd bend them back. And bluegills didn't care. And they were great because, you know, you don't have to be a great caster to catch a bluegill. And, uh, you don't have to be a great tire to catch a bluegill. they there. I love to teach people fly fishing on warm water for that reason. Um, so I moved from there to Florida and got really into saltwater fly fishing, went to college on a waterfront campus, Eckerd College, great marine science program. We had tarpon on in the retention ponds on campus. So I was pretty famously late to class because I was wrestling a redfish or a snook or a you know, throwing flies at tarpon, just lost track of time. Uh, and I would also be pretty famous at, you know, catching something and putting it in the tanks under the building on a stringer, go to class, and then sling it over my shoulder, go home and cook it for lunch. Uh, so I got really into saltwater uh, tying and fishing and worked for the state of Florida as a fisheries biologist, first as an intern and then as an employee. And my first job there was to throw away a bunch of samples from Roy Crabtree's bonefish gut content study. So I had all these glass vials with dead things in them and I had to wash the vials and, you know, cleaning glasswork, right? Really low entry, like, yes, I'm doing dishes basically for a lab. And I kept seeing critters in there that I didn't think bonefish ate. So I asked my boss and she gave me a copy of the paper and that kind of started to connect my trajectory between my science and my fishing. Um, And got to see that in the Keys, the bonefish there eat a lot of toadfish, particularly the larger bonefish eat a lot of toadfish. It's one of the most abundant fish on the flats. It's kind of a tan brown, tan brown, barred critter, um, Voracious, I'm glad they don't get six feet long because you'd be losing legs. Uh, mean, mean that would, thought- similar,
1: would, that, would that be similar to like a scalping? Like a
2: sculpin. Yeah. In, in a freshwater context, they look a, a lot alike. I caught one this morning. Actually, I was fishing for silver perch off our dock for some research and he caught this toadfish and he was mean and he was not happy. But, um, <laughs> bonefish eat a lot of them. And you look at like a lot of the famous keys bonefish patterns for the, the bigger fish patterns, a lot of West Andros bonefish patterns, tan brown, tan brown modeled, a lot of Borsky stuff. I love, I love Tim's patterns. Uh, and the, you know, I, I, I see that. I look at that. I think that could be a toadfish. And so I understand where, where a lot of that comes from and started making those linkages and, and then got a connection to the saltwater fly fisherman, John and Chris Homer in Clearwater. And I would drive up there as a college kid and they'd work with me on my casting and I find myself spending weekends at that shop. And, uh, so as a thank you for working on my double haul, uh, I tied them some toadfish patterns straight out of the paper, gave them the paper, highlighted everywhere it said toadfish as my, my own custom thank you. I was a college kid. I didn't have a lot of money, but I had some knowledge that I thought might be useful to them. And unbeknownst to me, as I'm leaving Florida and going up to Virginia to grad school, they sent the flies into Umpqua in my name. So the first month I'm in grad school, I get a call from Umqua saying, we want to take your pattern. And I was like, this is great. I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. So <laughs> they had to describe my fly to me on the phone. And then I figured out where it came from. And that's how I got my Umka contract completely accidentally.
1: Well, and was so that my Bruce first.
2: Alton? Was that through? So that was, was uh, the phone call was Bob Gard, but then Bruce Olsen contacted me in the fly development. And then I developed my relationship with Bruce from there. And I was able to get a couple of bonefish flies in the catalog. And, and it, was, it was really about 2007 or so before I got any freshwater flies in the catalog. And, and that's really, you know, that's your royalties are a little bit better there. People tend to buy those in larger volume. You know, people ask me why that's true. And, I, you know, I tend to buy my trout flies by the dozen, but my saltwater flies by the three, right? There's a All difference right. in price. Um, I don't want to tie a lot of tiny stuff. And also you open your fly box, three bead heads fall out. You put four in a tree, uh, you snap <laughs> a few off on fish. So you buy them by the dozen because if it's working, you stick with it till you run out. Right. Um, yep. and so, so then, you know, I kind of transition my commercialized tying over to, um, freshwater, uh, more than saltwater, simply just a revenue, uh, invest- investment of my time, uh, in, in things that would sell at higher volumes. And I was spending more of my free time out there because I was struggling with balance. My my office was the ocean, uh, and I was never off the clock. Even when I meant to be off the clock, I was still thinking about my work. And what I found about fishing in the mountains is I I don't have that problem. I don't work in freshwater. And so that's my playground. I'm off the clock. I can take in the birds and the bugs and the intricate ecology of it all and just feel like it's not just another day at the office. And that's just been my boundary. And so that's why I'm driving west while you're driving east. Yeah, well, sixty four.
1: Yeah. Well, I totally understand that because you know my whole career has been based in freshwater, right? Smallmouth bass, trout, uh, landlocked stripers, muskie—you name it. So I get it. You know, and it's 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 all it's a new world to you almost too, right? It's and it's fascinating in itself because for me, going to the salt and understanding tides and where fish are going to be when, where, and whatnot within the tides—that's huge. I mean, and it's. It's unlocking, you know, unlocking that door, stepping in it, and you figuring things out a little bit at a time. And for you, just like I learned a long time ago with trout, there's a whole nother thing about learning what they're eating, you know, within the seasons and the hatches, and even deer and hatches. Are they feeding on emergers? Are they are they feeding on you know dries? You know the nymph stage, all that kind of stuff, and and the whole science behind it with with you being a scientist, it makes sense, right? So. Um, being a great angler requires you to understand all types of fishing you can't you can't just be locked into one thing right and and being a designer of flies too you have to have an open mind on, on what fish see and and how they feed during the different life cycles of the, the food for sources that they, they see on a daily or yearly basis as they they move through their life right and uh, that's an important thing and I'm not going to quite get into the thing I really want to get into yet, because you know, we I want to talk a little bit about our history together. I mean, we um Bob Jenkins, an entomologist,
2: uh, like he's said, a sucker our, biologist, so he he's actually a, an expert on oh, that's Right,
1: that's exactly yeah. right. Uh, but he loves got, the
2: bugs. He's a he's a taxonomist, so he's everything's in Latin with Bob.
1: Yep. Yeah. I mean, I got completely messed up there because I was thinking uh, that the first time I ever met him was through Steve Heiner,
2: Steve Heiner, um, right? Who
1: is the entomologist? But Bob Jenkins, I mean, I loved him to death. We got to fish together a lot. Um, you know, he used to come in the shop all the time. And we, and like I said, we met him through that and I still have his book. I mean, and I used to go through all of it, you know, and design flies from his book, you know, and, um, you know, the Roanoke log perch and all the stuff that he, you know, the research he did on all that kind of stuff is, is amazing. Um, I haven't, I'm, unfortunately I've kind of lost touch with him. And I, I know we spoke not too long ago about him and, you know, I, I really cherish the times we got to spend with him obviously. And I know you do, but, um, now we, I don't know if we can talk about that later. But the one thing that what I've always been fascinated with this industry and this and, and fishing and the sport of fishing is, are the people you run into. And um, Bob was, you know, being a scientist as well. He was always just so into the intricacies of the hatches and and the, the way his flies that he tied himself and and whatnot. And then I met you, and you were the same way into it. And I think that's why we hit it off because you know you were curious about all of it. And obviously you guys have, you're on the, you're in the field occasionally, but you're in the, you know, in the lab or teaching most of the time as well. Right. So, um, the one thing that I see as a guide and and someone that's on the water every day is, you know, I don't have that scientific background and background and done the studies that you have, but what I do know is what I see on the water, how fish react positively or negatively to what you throw at them. Right. And so you end up, maybe not having the degree through through going to school but you are kind of going to school on the water and that's kind of be my I was terrible in real school man it's like I couldn't wait to get out of there so I could go to the water and fish right but um the key to it is having an open mind and and that's kind of what I'm kind of leading into and you know in, in your background and and what fish see and how they see them and how I've been able to bounce ideas off of you and um, you've been a big inspiration to me over the years and I want to thank you for that. But, uh, um, I want to, I want to, I want to kind of, I want to kind of, I don't know how to really start moving into this, this deal, uh, of, of how fish see things, but you know, I recall a couple, I don't know how long it's been. It seems like yesterday, but it's probably been 15 years ago now And when, when I was really messing around with muskies 20 year I don't know how long it's been, but I you know, I kind of went away from the trout and, and whatnot. And, you know, I started you know, seeing these different things and and it's really started resonating it's like I'm just a lot of negative, right? Because you're you're trying to feed a fish as a muskie, it's one of the top five fish in the world. It's probably one of the top five fish in the world, hardest to catch. There is, right? So it was important and it and you really helped me crack the code on on it. Because you you told me to start looking at their biologic makeup, you know. Um, and I want to talk about that too, because I think people, uh, they, they get a lot of voodoo in their fishing, you know, and, and colors and, and whatnot. Right. Um, you know, and I said earlier in attracting qualities and triggering qualities, and how do you feel about that? Because, um, you know, Larry Dahlberg really looked up to Doug Hannon, uh, the bass professor and, um, he really respected his, his thought process on how fish feed and whatnot, um, you kinda of play into that and in your designs? Do you you kinda of, you, you feel that way? I mean, being a scientist yourself and um so I know you probably roll your eyes sometimes when you might read an article in, in, in fishing world about man, these people are like and I don't I don't know if we wanna get into UV today or not. I don't know, is that something you wanna talk sure. about later? Sure, we can okay. talk about UV, yeah. yeah. But not right yeah. now. But Yeah.
2: So uh, you mentioned some big names and I need to talk about them real quick. Um, So Larry Dahlberg, I've never met the man. Uh, Grew up watching him on television, reading things he's written. Love the guy. Fascinating guy. Earlier, you mentioned Bob Popovics. Bob is one of my lifelong heroes. I was a 15, 16 year old kid at at the Fly Show in Jersey, walking around, getting a lot of Lack of interest from people in this industry, from some of the big names, some of my heroes, walk up, crack up a fly box, get shooed out of their booth as soon as I could. Uh, Bob was tying that day. So he was, and it was later on a Sunday. He was tired and yet he welcomed me like he, like I was a cousin or a a family member and showed me how to tie an ultra shrimp, tied one right in front of me, gave it to me, sat me down at his vice. Didn't have to do that. You know, taught me how to tie with epoxy. And I'll tell you, my ultra shrimp was hideous. It was way too much epoxy. The hackle was crooked. But to me, that was the best fly I'd ever tied. And it opened the doors of tying with epoxy to me and was the first real positive experience I had with someone in the industry. And a lot of the big names I had not had great initial experiences with because I was a nobody to them. And, uh, you know, as as a kid, I didn't have a lot of money to spend. And They're a business at the end of the day, and they're trying to make money. And I get it, you know, in hindsight. But when you're 15, that crushes your spirit. So to have someone like Bob, you know, show me that this 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 field is receptive to people like me. I wanted to talk science with them, and they're like, I don't have time to chat with you, kid. And I get it, right? But Bob, Bob taught me a very powerful lesson that day, and that is that, that the future of the sport lies in the youth, and whatever we can do to open doors, to knock down walls, to break barriers, and bring more diversity, more young people into the sport, the more fun it's going to be. right? And I fish a lot with old people, so I get a lot of the cranky old man's perspective uh, on that. And you know, We do talk about Jenkins, and you know, we'd have three-hour debates about whether two or three leg- uh, tails on a mayfly matters. Uh, and I love that. I love, I love it all. Right. I love it all. He is an intense, realistic tire, and I get it, and I love it. Right. So, some big heroes in my life that led me to this present point in answering your question. Uh, yeah. I uh, when I design a fly, I think about a couple things. Sometimes my designs come out of a problem that I've seen um, from a fishing trip. Something didn't sink fast enough. That carp keeps turning away from my fly. Does this fly doesn't have some movement? Something like that. Or I'm not getting enough strikes on this. Maybe uh, I need a, a greener chartreuse or a yellower chartreuse in this case, right? What makes a fish trigger to bite? So sometimes it comes from thinking about mimicking a prey item and how how does it behave, right? How does it look? How does it swim? <laughs> and sometimes it comes from thinking about a predator and a problem. So your, your musky thing, I remember that phone call, right, where you're getting follows and then they're turning off at the boat. And so how... How can you get the fish to eat? So we talked a lot about the predatory responses of a muskie and how, how muskie eat. And they're built like a, a missile and they're built to, to, and you, you nailed it in your fly name. They've built a T-bone a fly. They want to see that lateral patch. You got to give them at least a quarter of a flank and then you're going to get a strike or you're more likely to get a strike. There's no guarantee. It. It's muskie fish at the end of the day. You might give him a flank on 10,000 casts and get one on cast 10,000 at one. But, you know, you're not going to get one if he's just tasting a tail. He's not designed to grab a prey at him by his tail. Musky mouths and the way they strike are designed that S position they curl up in at the last second are designed to hit something from the back quarter, snag, turn, and swallow. And so that's where the articulation and the movement, I think, was your holy grail is you gave him, you gave him something to grab onto. So they weren't just wasting energy swiping the tails.
1: Yeah, you're getting me excited, man. Because we're this is what I love about you, man. This is like you get it, you know, as a scientist, but as an angler, you get it, and and uh, that's why I've, I've always cherished our friendship because we're getting ready to get into some cool stuff here, man. Because there is, I mean, the biologic makeup of fish is huge on on the way of a design. You, you design a fly or a lure of any of that kind of stuff, and and visually seeing that and understanding that, and I tell people, I don't know, do you agree with this? Like a lot of my talks that I give, I talk about how a trout, especially a brown trout, as they get a certain size, say over 20 inches, it could be 21, 22, 23, they'll they'll start moving away more from eating the bugs. Not saying they won't eat a bugs, because it's all it's mother's milk. They'll always go back to that, but their body shape changes, right? Uh they get a bigger mouth. They have their teeth develop more. Um, they a lot of times they will start feeding a lot like ESOX-type fish, right, in my opinion. Um, and if, I've also kind of slowed down stuff and watched how a brown trout will attack a streamer. They almost will do the same thing as they wait, and they'll kind of hit it in front the side, even though it looks like they're overcoming the, the fly or bait. Um, would you agree with that? I mean, you could, you're not going to hurt my feelings if I'm saying stuff that's not right, because that's how you learn.
2: Sure. Well, so, so talking, about, I mean, anytime you can flank a prey item, you've got a better chance of grabbing onto something. If you're just chasing a tail, you have to overcome, guess the angle right, swallow, close, because fish swim forward, right? So if you're only caught the propeller, but you don't have it well, that thing's going to take off. As soon as it wriggles out, it's gone. Next kick, it's gone. But if you can T-bone something, the propeller, or if you can head on a prey item, it's got nowhere to go but into you. Nowhere to go if you T bone it, but into your tooth and lock, right? I'm making hand gestures like at the podcast viewers is going to be able to see. I'm sitting here like attacking my hands like I'm a prey item uh, or a predator, right? But um, so, yeah, anytime you can give a predator a shot, you know, fishing something on a loop knot, throw, wiggle your rod tip. I know that's sacrilege in the fly fishing industry. Although, Blaine, you know, I've, I've had a sore wrist for three or four days after fishing with you with all the pop popping <laughs> you do on your yeah. subsurface patterns for that very reason, right? You're just trying to give a vulnerable look to the predator. You want the prey to make that one mistake, that momentary oops, that ends up ending so many lives in the water, right? Um, and, and often a, a predator chasing a prey is just looking for that prey to make that mistake. Because if you're just nipping at tails, the probability of success is low, and over time that means you're wasting more calories than you're getting and you're gonna starve. And it is true that many species of fish become more piscivorous or fish-eating, Pisces fish, so fish-eating piscivor, uh, become more fish eating with age. You see it in bonefish, right? You think shrimp, crabs, but bigger bonefish tend to eat a lot of um, a lot of fish protein. Fish protein is really, uh, it's, it's a good protein source. It's a high calorie item. Uh, and, you know, there are many, you know, striped bass guys, for example, think about menhaden, right? And I'll tell you that menhaden are very important to striped bass but I'm going to tell you that mycids and and anchovies are probably more important to growing striped bass stocks. It's not the Big Macs that cause a lot of growth. There's there's times where you want to pack that Big Mac in pre-spawn before you head upriver to spawn. Absolutely. You need those calories. But really cool scientific studies done with other, other species, so weak fish and other species show that growth is a lot faster if you eat lots of low calorie prey items than it is if you eat a couple larger prey items. You can pack a lot of rice cake into your stomach. Right, but you can only pack a little, little bit of steak. And after you eat a whole pizza, for example, you know you kind of want to take a nap afterwards, right? But if you're just grazing all day, you can end up always having your stomach full, always digesting, and so the growth of weak fish fed mysid shrimp. This is work done at the University of Delaware. The growth of weak fish fed mysid shrimp was two times faster fed tiny, tiny little mysids than it was the larger sand shrimp. Completely counter to it. it was one of the five papers that changed the way I view the world. Because you would, you, as a fisherman, you always think big. Big bait, big you know, big prey item, big predator. Big fish eat big things, and that's certainly true. But that's not where they get a lot of their all of their energy from. Sometimes packing in that smaller prey item now and then. Uh, I've fished White River a few times with some really really good guides, and there's a, a 37 inch brown that's been caught several times on one stretch of the North Fork and <clears throat> um, an adjoining river. It was caught once on a large streamer. It was caught the second time uh, on a size 18 midge.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah yeah right
2: yeah so and this fish tends to lord off the some of the fish cleaning station docks and just eat carcasses and that's how it got to be that big i've managed uh, you know had the opportunity to fish iceland a few times to fish thing valava in the big lake there for those pre-glacial strain some of the oldest brown trout on the planet oldest meaning lineage wise uh, they survived glaciation because the lake's geothermal and they are those guys for small streamers and so i came over with you know the, one of my prototype game changers shortly after the shanks were commercially available uh, within a month or two of them hitting the market. I was heading off to Iceland and, uh, I you know I tied this fin raccoon zonker. I felt like throwing a wet wet sock and I'm casting on a 10 foot, 10 weight with a full sinking line on this enormous geothermal lake. And, uh, when I could get the fly moving and get it cast, you know, because you're thrown into a 40 knot wind. And I had the whole Dikembe Mutumbo experience where you'd crow hop into a double hole, just to try to beat the wind. And it stops in the air and flies 40 feet behind you. And you sit down and you drink a hot tea and you wait for the wind to blow out. Right. And they had never seen an articulated fly. And they, some of the guides were really, really interested in it. They hadn't seen a lot of ostrich hurl. I had a lot of ostrich hurl patterns, bigger moving things, applying your principles of big fish eat, Big prey and there, those big browns are getting big by eating char and those yep. char are eating zooplankton. So you want the wind blowing in your face all day into your cove. And then when that wind dies down, it's blowing all the food into the cove, all the char show up. And then these big browns, I mean, it, it was like watching jacks hit a school of mullet. It was insane for about an hour and a half. And then it was over. And I set five personal bests, you know, in that two hour period. Uh, and it was just a remarkable experience, you know, fish of a lifetime that on a 10 foot 10 weight, you're stopping with 10 wraps of line on your spool. Left. I mean, to almost get lined, you know, by a brown trout in a lake is, is a crazy experience.
1: Yeah, I remember That's this really photo it. that sent me. Yeah. They were phenomenal. Just beautiful Not, fish. the
2: experience. And they're thinking about the science. That char has four, it appears four different ways based on what it's eating. It's the same species, but it looks totally different based on what it's eating. They're ecomorphotypes. And the one that they're, the fish in that lake are after are sort of the, the bluish silver uh, zooplankton eating morph. It's so the called the Murta, M-U-R-T-A is their is their word for it. And it's sort of like you would see in a in a Kokanee or something like that in, in the US, or that sort of bluish purple you'd see on uh, a, an anchovy or a shad. That sort of you know, kind of oil on water sheen. It's essentially a white thing with that sheen. So that ice dub and the purple UV, which isn't actually UV, it's just purple. Um, that context, that that shine.
1: See how excited I now now you know why I'm so excited about being able to have him on here. It's uh he knows some shit and, uh, you know, it's, it's really, I love this because this is what I spend my life doing is figuring these things out and, and, you know, uh, being able to hear this kind of stuff. I get super excited about this, you know, I, it might be getting too geeked out, but I, I, I could promise you, this is going to be some really cool stuff. So.
2: Well, you made, you keep, made a great point keep, that, you know, like I, I study books and I study fish in a lab, but you have eyes on the water. And it's the dialogue between scientists who are recreational fishermen but can't spend the hours on the day because I have to sit in front of a computer and do meetings. And, you know, when I was a professor, I had to teach classes and I had to grade papers and all that instead of the, the you know, the, the experiential PhD you have, which is to be on the water and see things. And the dialogue, the conversation between two people um, is and between field scientists as well and, and lab-based scientists is what allows the discipline to move forward. Stakeholder involvement, the back and forth incredible right i mean it grows the way i view the world and i learn things i I, you you will probably won't agree with me when i say this but i've learned as much from you that probably more from you than i've ever taught you in our conversations because you have the hours and days on the water and you see, see things i wouldn't even like i can think about the process but you've seen it you can describe it to me and that gets my wheels turning of okay why is that how did that happen why should that happen why does it make sense that that happened and then, you know, each each idea, each person's perspective is incrementing the approach so that the final synthesis product is, you know, something like a T-bone, a fantastic pattern that it changed an industry, something like your Game Changer, a fantastic pattern that changed the industry. Oh,
1: I appreciate that, man. And, you know, Lefty's always said it best, you got to share your knowledge, right? I mean, you can't take it with you. And, you know, I, at the part of the trout world, especially when I was growing up, it was never, never to share anything that you had in your box you know it was always like top secret stuff you know bob was a little bit like that you know <laughs> yep. uh, but you know what you know it's it is about that it's about sharing it's like you can't move that you can't move the needle and you can't move forward and you can't you know the fisheries are not getting any easier right so the fish are getting smarter they get more pressure we got you know as us as anglers and designers have to figure out what the next best, best thing is and, and kind of get rid of the, like, uh, I don't want to say voodoo on this, but you just getting rid of like the, the the garbage and, and kind of like putting out there, like what really is going on, you know, and, and not just adding a bunch of stuff on a hook and then calling it whatever, you know, there's got to yeah. have purpose to the design and it's all based. And I want to stay on this, this, uh, the, the physio physiology of the fish, you know, and, and mm-hmm. the biologic makeup of all, you know, how they, you know, how they grow up, you know, their, their way they attack foods. You know, I always will look at, like you said, um the more elongated fish, like the ESOX species, barracudas, mm-hmm. uh, king mackerel, all those type of fish have that that S type to eat, and they also have elongated mouths and teeth. And then you have bucket feeders, right? Mm-hmm. Like bass, striped mm-hmm. bass and whatnot. Do you see... I feel like there is, but do you see like, if you're designing a fly for certain species of fish um, and we'll just kind of go to streamers for this, this specific uh, topic. Um, I mean, because we can go back to, you know, big fish, will eat a bag of chips, which can be aquatic insects, micro, I mean, it could be anchovies, glass or whatever. Um, But my thing and I'm interested in is creating that predatory response, you know, Mm -hmm. um, That's always been my thing, and I don't want to stay in that realm, but I do want to talk about that. Do you have a you have a feeling that, that I mean that there really is in a, when you're designing a fly like that, or a, for specific species, there should be built-in triggers? You know, you can add the attracting qualities with sound, flash, whatnot, but the way the the thing will move, the you know, and and get the presence out there, and and, and finishing. The attack, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's like Mm -hmm. the difference between a follow versus an eat. Um, How important do you think that is uh, as an angler and designer of floors or flies and choosing what you should have based on the conditions at hand and the species that you're fishing for? Um, How important do you think that is and what do you think some of the answers to that would be? I know it's kind of a big, wide, broad
2: deal. Well, and I'll I'll just draw on your time to answer the question. I'll I'll tie in some Blaine patterns here, right? So when you're talking about a reaction bite and eat based on sight alone, and, and there are fish that will eat as soon as a fly slaps the water, right? And I look at the glass middle, right? Great pattern. And um so, so you're gummy minnow, right? You're, you're a small glass minnow, gummy minnow version. And that fly caught on in Rulos Rocus for bonefish, right? Became one of the top selling bonefish patterns for that region because that's what they're eating. You're mimicking their prey and all you need to do is twitch it. That's going to work in that circumstance, but there's going to be other circumstances, particularly with pressured fish in slower water, where that's just going to look like a pencil. Right and it's not going to and those are your exact words from a conversation we we had on the holston it's going to look like a pencil and you know that's not going to cut it that's not a one fly across all genres in its in its niche and in its use it is brilliant and it was game changing in its own context but sometimes you need more movement sometimes you need a different trigger right
1: there is and I always considered one... that fly always considered that fly a failure you know um, it was not what I intended it to be in the end you know it was it had the last what I would call the last triggering part of like when they get right up to it, does it look like the food item that I, you know, normally eat. And it had those qualities, but it did not have the triggering qualities that I wanted in the movement and whatnot. So keep going. So
2: in in its context though, in, in the right situation, it can be as uh, more productive than another pattern, but it was very context specific It ended up being more context specific. And I remember an iteration, an articulated iteration afterwards that the, a lot of people may not know about your frenzy minnow, which was yep. to me one of the best flies I've ever thrown. I, my wrist and forearm would regret throwing it all day, <laughs> uh, but um, uh, the one or two that I happened to have possession of until they were obliterated by fish after the I don't know hundredth fish they caught or whatever uh, were just remarkable patterns. And, and I remember Bruce Olson told me uh, in, a, in a lunchtime conversation uh, in Colorado. He told me that when he saw that fly in the water, he said, "I told Blaine that I saw God." because he saw a fly do something that no fly should ever do
1: yeah well, right? i appreciate and, uh, that so
2: so and and then you can look at the modern lineage game changer and know that it came up from yeah you, know, you can try and i'm sure there were so many intermediate patterns that didn't you know that i've never seen and, and some of your other friends have never seen uh but the the you know i as a scientist i look at lineages and evolution and i can see the evolution of the thought process just going from um, you know, your gummy minnow out to some of your more modern articulated patterns. And and the more movement you give a fly, you know, the, the more you're incorporating other strike triggers. And my tying, since I'm doing mostly trout, I'm using optical triggers. I'm using bending light through things like ice stub and pearl core braid to give the illusion of movement as a fish gets closer to the fly. I want a fish to approach the fly, and I want the optics of the fly to make it look like the fly is moving and glistening in 3D and organic and yummy. And fish don't have hands, so they can't ask, what is that? Let me check that out, right? They have to go and ask that question of their mouths, right? They they stick stuff in their mouth. And is that food? Yes, I'll eat it. Not sure. Ooh, that doesn't feel right. I'll spit it out. Or get right up to it and then say, do oh, not Bob Jenkins context, oh no, it only has two tails. This mayfly has three. I'm going to fade off, right? Uh, I say that partially in jest um but so so what are those triggers and for me for a lot of my tying, they're optical i love ice dub particularly the multi-hued ice dubs uh anything with a uv which isn't really uv but close enough it's violet um anything like that that's going to change that candy painting you guys all know candy painted cars i i love my uh circa 2000 hip-hop music right so um that candy painting which i used to see a lot of when i lived in florida as you approach the car you swear that car is a different color Every couple steps, a different hue shows through. So ice stub, I think does that. It, it, and if you hold that olive brown ice stub under a table in a conference center with fluorescent lighting, you'll notice a little bit more green, less brown, more green. You hold it up to the light, it's pink and purple, and you don't notice that it's brown at all. So if your fish is looking up at that ice stub versus down at that ice stub, it's going to look totally different. The same material will look totally different based on the angle of the sun and the background you're viewing it against. And I, I, this is my tortures. That's what I spend a lot of time on my stream doing instead of casting on a, on a tough hatch is I'm thinking about that instead of just putting a fly on the water.
1: But this um, is what I love though. This is why I, I love talking to you, man, because this is the stuff I think about, you know, why? And, and
2: how, how would that ice dub look if you're in the sunlight and then you drift under a tree? to a fish that's looking head on or a fish that's looking down or a fish that's looking up, you know, all those optics, right? So that's why I, I can almost, one of the things I hate about production fly tying and, and you know, um, when they take a pattern, they want five dozen exact replicates. And it is nails on a chalkboard to, for me to tie the same thing twice, let alone, I want to tinker. I want to add more flash, less flash, flash here, flash there. Let's try, maybe I want some hen, you know, something like that. Because I'm always looking for that next fix and that next trigger and the novelty principle that I believe in. Give fish something they're not used to seeing. I fish a lot of blue because nobody fishes a lot of blue. One of my best Jackson, well, I shouldn't say this out loud. One of my best nymphs on, well, I've already said it, on the Jackson River is as a silver beaded blue bodied nymph. I'll stop there in terms of describing it. Um, let's just say it's a paragon style nymph, tungsten bead. And I love silver because fish can see it from far away. And then the blue doesn't look like what they're used to seeing. And so, even in the pressured stretches close to the dam, where all the general public can stand in there, and you can be packed on a good weekend, long weekend day, you know, my success rates there are pretty good because I'm fishing something that they're um, not used to seeing. And, and someday, Blaine, I'm going to raid your fly boxes and steal your black fly larvae for that river. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, that day hasn't happened yet.
1: Well, I'm happy to. I don't do a lot of that fishing anymore, so I'm happy to give them to you, man. I just, uh, you know, not that I don't love it. It's just I've been like, like I said, I'm, I'm, my, my. My vision is to, to the coast. You know, that's all I want to do. I want to get in that salt. I love that salt there. Uh, we'll have to come down and visit you sometime because I got a buddy that's that moved down that way and we got maybe get out in the water. You know, have 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 a beer and maybe catch a redfish or, or striped bass or whatever sometime. But um, I love I love that I love that thought and, and we're and we're kind of getting closer and closer to how what fish see and how they see and their cones and and ambient light and how and I talk about that in my in my talks. I mean because of you. Um because you really got me focused on if a fish is tracking it and it's backlit or forelit, it's a big deal. You know, sometimes all they're seeing is profile and silhouette. And how big of a deal do you think that is, not only with streamers, but it could be shrimp, it could be nymphs, it could be larvae, it could be whatever. I mean, let's talk a little bit about that and your thought sure. process based on sure. how fish see and their cones on that thing. Sure.
2: So I'm going to start that conversation with light, right? So to understand vision, you have to understand light. And, and you and I as, as humans and, and most visually enabled humans have the ability to, to you, you see things with your eyes that you accept as everyday facts, but you don't realize how remarkable there are, they are. Um, there's between a million and a billion units of light intensity change in a day. The difference between a clear midnight and a sunny noon is a million units if the moon is full. A million—it is a million times darker at noon under a full moon on a bright day than it was at at noon, right? Uh, if there's a if there's a new moon, meaning no moon in the sky, so starlight only, it is a billion times dimmer at night than it was at noon, right? And so that's a remarkable difference, and and no human and no fish and no no visual system can really keep up with optimal performance under each of those. Each of us has a bell curve where we do optimally at something, and we're weaker on one side and Stronger on the other, whether we're talking about colors, whether we're talking about intensity, whether we're talking about the speed of vision, your eye is a camera, right? The the vertebrate eye is called a camera eye. It differs from invertebrate compound eyes, but your eye is a camera, and if you're um if you ever did photography before digital cameras, then you know a lot of this already, right, in terms of the shutter speed of the eye and, you know, f-stops and things like that, and thinking about optics and thinking about films and thinking about aperture openings. But for the, you know, the modern cell phone people that are just using filters, you know, it, it's not as intuitive, and I think it's going to get harder and harder for people to understand because now our our smartphones that make for dumb people do a lot of things for us, and we don't we don't have to think about it anymore, right? Um, so, so when light, let's say it's a million or a, a million or a billion units of light intensity in a day, right? And then you also have a slight change in the the frequent the um, wavelengths available based on the angle of the sun. So you'll notice that dawns and dusks are a little bit more yellow light, right? They look a little redder to you, a little more orange, and that the the midday sun is very white lightish, very intense in the blues, right? And then when light hits water, it gets even more complicated. So we'll we'll start with a swimming pool, right? When you get in a swimming pool and you look at the bottom of the pool, what do you see? Yeah,
1: you just see you all see the You see those little difference.
2: veins of light. You see little yep. shadowy places and little veins of light. So you've got, based on the surface of the water, you have some focusing, and, you know, you've got some nodes and anti-nodes of light. And they will um, sort of experience, uh, a prey item swimming through that will have shadowed parts and lit parts, Right. And so as that light goes through the water, it gets dimmer just by the nature of being in water. It starts to get dimmer. Water is a low-contrast medium. Similarly, when you drive through water, what do we call that? Fog. You can't see as far. You can't see as many colors. And the whole color spectrum kind of rains in on you. So things in water fade to gray with distance. Even in the clearest water, 140 feet away from you, it's going to be a gray object. And as you start to sink through the water, various processes like absorption and scattering are taking out some of the wavelengths of light. So uh, sunlight is generally called white light. It has all the colors humans can see from 400 to 700 nanometers, from the purples to the reds, but it has way more. It has infrared, it has ultraviolet. (laughs) You just can't see those very well. And so as you go through the water, based on the properties of the water, some of those wavelengths are getting pinged out. The clearer the water, the better the penetration. Blue penetrates the furthest in the open ocean. Red disappears very quickly. If you take a red object down with you on a scuba dive, After about 30 feet, it's going to be blue or whatever its secondary color is. And for that reason, most marine fish do not see red as red. Ooh, sacrilege alert number one flashing red lights, sound the horn. Most marine fish don't see red as red. So red hooks, red line, red gills are going to be irrelevant to most predators.
1: Here we go. One of the
2: exceptions, (laughs) one of the exceptions are striped bass. Striped bass have an anadromous eye. Striped bass are born in freshwater, grow up in saltwater, come back to freshwater spawn. So their eye has the more of the performance of a freshwater-like fish. They can actually see red at close distance in bright light near the surface. But again, red disappears very quickly. <clears throat> I remember that Cajun fire line uh, came out a while back. The red line disappears in water. Not exactly. It basically would be seen as a fish as blue, gray to black. So it'd be arguably the most obvious fishing line. Um, so just, you know... People learn just enough science to think they they can crack a special code, but generally, you know, um, that's not how that's not how it works. If what it was that I, good, people somebody would have figured it out a hundred years ago.
1: Yeah. What, what's your feeling on fluorocarbon?
2: Uh, so that is an optical density thing, and I I like it. I use it when I when I nymph fish um, on my you know, largely because I do a lot of euro nymphing now, um, yep. and so I, I I like the fact that it sinks. I like the fact that it doesn't kink. I hate how it holds knots. I really. I can't stand yep. tying fluorocarbon knots, especially if yeah, you
1: does have uh, a tendency to so slip more, yep. But yeah, um,
2: and, and but it's also a little bit more abrasion resistance. I don't like it so much for throwing emergers or dries unless I want them to fish on the wetter side of dry, then right. I'll throw yep. it. Uh, but I also have problems with rising fish getting lined that, that wouldn't have been lined from a nylon leader, mono leader, because the, the leader's just under the surface film and the fish came up and looked at my fly, but then felt the leader on its back and took off. So I don't use it. I use it in a very specific context. All um, right. And I, I like it for certain reasons in saltwater, but I also retie it a lot in saltwater because anytime the leader gets smoked or scratched up by fish teeth, then it's not functioning the right way anyway. Well, what
1: about the side of it where they say it kind of in the beginning with fluorocarbon? They said it went invisible to the fish in the water versus nylon.
2: Uh, yeah, it looks yep. it, that, that's optically that's true. It looks it looks a lot okay. more like water. Yeah.
1: All right. So, so if, part of this conversation is debunking stuff. So yeah. that's, so, that's, so.
2: I believe that in floral, but floral also degrades really bad in ultraviolet. And so you want to store it out of the light. You don't want yeah. to leave it, you know, sitting in the sunlight. You don't want to leave it baking in your car and you want to keep it covered up on a boat. Right. You don't want to wear your fluorocarbon leaders out exposed to the sunlight on a, you know, a spool or something uh, on your on your sling pack or whatever. You want to keep those in the dark as much as you can <laughs> okay. because they will break down and then they get brittle they get stiff and brittle and start to break off at way below uh where you would expect them to. Um so yeah, so I think about a lot how how you know light colors disappear. And so you can get a lot of sense of what colors are going to optimally um be seen at depth based on the color of the water, right? And so what what do I mean by that? In blue water, blue reaches the furthest, right? The reds are going to disappear uh pretty quickly, then the yellows, then you know, then Green, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you look at fish like uh, a lot of the groupers, black sea bass that I've worked on, they see life as a blue-green world. You go even deeper to swordfish, life is a black and white TV and blue hues to, to a swordfish, right? Okay. Um, versus creatures that are closer in brighter light, so a shallow-dwelling, bright-light animal is going to see a wider range of colors. Humans are trichromatic. You have three different visual pigments that allow most of us who are not colorblind to see from purple to red, from 400 to 700 nanometers. Optimal human vision is green at about 555 nanometers. And so uh, I often find tying chartreuse flies to be, or olive flies to be hard, especially olive, because it always seems like there's more shades of olive than any other color. And in fact, there are not. It's just that humans are really good at seeing green. And so you, you can ascertain slight differences in shade that a fish probably wouldn't see. Because your three visual pigments each have a little bit of activity in the green, the blue, uh, and the red, or orange pigment, and then the green pigment in the middle all have some activity there. So you have good resolution. You've got three different channels telling you that that object is green.
1: Since we're talking about green, and mm-hmm. some, of, some of you know you're gonna, you know what I'm getting ready to ask. Uh, what's your feeling on chartreuse? Uh, well, Lefty, what I'd love to say if it,
2: ain't, if it ain't chartreuse, it ain't no use, right, Lefty Craig? Yep. Uh, yeah. For a fish in Chesapeake Bay. That was his, one of his famous quotes. And I love chartreuse in, in saltwater. Love it. I don't fish as much in freshwater. I do, but I don't, not as much as, I'll I'll, sort, I'll reach for other colors first. Yeah. Nothing in the wild is really naturally chartreuse. Um, how do you, you know think how you
0: chartreuse?
2: Do you know how it got its name? How that color got its name?
1: No, chartreuse. I do not.
2: It was the, it, it came from uh, liquor that was created by French Cartesian monks that was neon green. And they named it chartreuse. And then that is, the the liquor was that color and that's where that that name comes from cartesian monks from like the 1700s were making liquor in neon green so yeah that's where that's where the name gets it's uh, that's that's where Chartreuse comes from
0: i'm gonna i gotta um, jump in here real I knew, quick i knew blaine, it i knew blaine, I, blaine and i were gonna guess mad dog 2020 but, <laughs> but it's not it's not named mad toos right so i guess we were wrong that would have been my guess so
2: yeah yeah Cartesian sorry works.
0: sorry sorry the idiot the, the peanut gallery to, at least you know i'm here listening right so yeah, yeah. to make right, sure right. there's no technical difficulties but god blaine hey way to invite this guy and make us all look dumber than we are well uh, now you know if you're ever talking
1: to i love talking to Andre, it's been way too long too but i mean it's, there's no better way of getting humbled other than by your wife is talk to a, a scientist that knows what the hell he's talking about. right? Yeah, so well, I like, would
2: argue there's no better way to be humble than watch Blaine catch 10 fish to your one. Uh, right? no, and then you realize no. all your knowledge counts for nothing, right? Uh, <laughs> no. And I'll say this. So, so the, the, the scariest uh, person I fish with, Robert Humpston, Dr. Robert Humston, is at Washington League and was part of the U.S. competitive circuit uh, fly fishing national team. Robert's brilliant. He works, he's worked on bonefish. He'd be a great guest for your podcast. He's also the that fishiest fly great. fisherman. Fishiest fly fisherman I've ever fished with. I have watched him order of magnitude me, catch 10 times more fish than me, every time fishing behind me. Right. He'll let me fish a stretch of river. He'll come right back behind me, mop it up, and show me everything I missed. And he casts where I walk. He's pulling fish bigger than I catch anywhere. In the, in the prime lie, he's pulling fish bigger than I would catch out of places where I walk. He sees the water differently. He's absolutely worth a chat. He works a lot on fish movement and fish behavior using tagging data. Um, and He's wow. just oh, a scary. Bad. I love,
1: I love the scary hear good hear fly fisherman. Yeah, yeah, I would love, he's to, love to love to talk to um, him anytime. So I can again, learn,
2: there, there, I'm getting humbled by a scientist and a fly fisherman who's better at me than both. So there you go. <laughs> uh,
1: I'll, you I'll say humble. this, and he, he very, might disagree
2: okay. with me. He might disagree with me, but I, I think I tie a prettier fly. <laughs> I didn't say better fly. I said a prettier fly.
1: There you go. Well, you know what, um, man, you're way too humble. You tie beautiful flies. You're a good angler. You, I mean, you've you've been a an unbelievable sounding board. So you got to give yourself a lot more credit. I know I know, I do. So
2: so, for you. so, we were on chartreuse, and sadly, I have none to offer any of you. I don't have any. But uh, it is more than just a liqueur. It's also a really popular color. And you've probably noticed in your own tying that just one company's chartreuse doesn't look like another. And in successive batches made by a given vendor, I'm not going to name any vendor because I'm not I'm trying to embarrass anybody. But, you know, uh, a color you're used to buying from the same manufacturer doesn't show up the same way year after year after year and it's because you're really good at seeing green you're really anal about green and there's as many shades of blue and as many shades of every other color as well but you're really dialed in to seeing green and in fact red light vision the ability to see red uh in mammals is quite rare it's really primates so deer hunters can wear orange and the deer just see it as a gray right uh primates there's a couple reasons we'd want to see red Have you ever seen the backside of a baboon on a nature show? You know that there's a lot of advertising, reproductive advertising that happens in the reds. And there's a whole great story about how lipstick came to be. But this is a family podcast, and I'm not going to touch that. Um, And so, yeah, so it's nuptial coloration. I know that
0: story. (laughs) I'm not going to touch it either. There's too many. uh, If I was on the podcast by myself, I would tell the story. But I will just say that it, it has something to do with houses of ill refute. And I'll leave it
2: yeah. at that. Yes. Uh, advertising. I'm not as dumb it. as you are, Blaine. Ah. I'll, I'll leave it at advertising. Yeah. Uh, and also, we'd want to know when the fruit is ripe. Right. So in primates, there's, there's some biological reasons why you'd want to see that. And in marine fishes, there's really not that incentive. Right. The eye is an expensive organ. And you experienced this as a kid. You probably did something athletic or had somebody punch you in the chest. And then, you know, your hearing goes away. Your vision, you get tunnel vision, then you pass it. Or was that yeah. just my experience playing hockey, maybe? But um, <laughs> in well, uh, I, I you know, the eye is an expensive organ, and you start to lose your vision the second you get hypoxic. It, it takes a lot of energy to keep your eye optimally functioning, and so you don't want to waste energy on a wavelength you wouldn't normally see at the depth you live in anyway. So most marine fish don't see red as red. They would see it as a blue or a black. And that extends to blue water as well. I, uh, my master's degree was chasing marlin around the ocean with satellite tags, looking at circle and j-hooks and survival rates. And actually, ended, my research ended up changing domestic law on the matter. And I feel really happy about that. That's probably the most important achievement of my scientific career in terms of making a difference in fisheries was that project. But I loved fish, fishing pink and blue in blue water. And most of your pelagic game fish aren't going to see the pink. They're going to see it as gray. Um, and that's so, something. You know, most, yeah. And flounder, most, I lo- I love pink over white in my heavy clousers, deceivers, and half and halves. But they can't, flounder don't see pink. So it's really moist, just a gray eye.
1: It's more for the angler.
2: Yeah. So, but you you can track it with your eyes, and I'm sure you've had this with clients where yeah, they yeah. can see well, that pink really well. So they look. If your client knows where the fly is, by all means, fish pink. Right. It doesn't well, matter yeah, what, I mean as long as the fish eats it. What do you care what the fish thinks it is? Right. Right. Well, for, for
1: also they're fishing it better because they can't see it and they they're yeah. they're mimicking helping mimic yeah. what the bait fish should be doing so since we're talking about this let's you know a lot of tarpon anglers tarpon guides you know it's they want to fish black and purple i mean if yep. that's all they want to fish um yep. and we've had these conversations about stuff like that let's 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 get into that a little bit i mean tarpon's sure. one of the most popular fish there is on the planet and As long as it's black and purple, they're throwing it at Tarpon, right? I mean, there's there's obviously other times where they're matching the Palola worm and whatnot. But other than that, black and purple, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. what's your feelings on that?
2: And I would say I I hear a lot about that color scheme for Cobia as well. Uh, And I will say the visual system appears to be way more interesting than the Cobia visual system. Cobia are kind of a blue-greenish world and not not much else. Um, And Tarpons seem to be very complicated based on some work done in Florida. And I, I haven't worked on tarpon myself. Um, so I can't really chime in. They use slightly different techniques than the ones I use. So uh, I can't really, can't really talk that intelligently about tarpon other than there's some really smart people that have worked on it in Florida. And it looks like it's a really interesting visual system that probably changes with age pretty dramatically. There's there's probably some tuning and pigments being turned on and off with age in, in that species. And that's also why I'd love to do bonefish and permit. Uh, as if you know, if, if, uh, if there are any interested parties, I would love to uh, to do that work. And there's lots of academics actually that would be chomping at the bit to do that work. Well, I would um, love to do that. I would hello, love to do uh, that. Uh, black and black and purple. I can tell you that almost any saltwater fish is going to see black. Black is a is the absence of color, right? Uh, and so it's a shade, not a color. Um, and everybody's going to see it. And purple should be seen by most saltwater game fish anyway, because even though Purple, purple and blue are, are very—they're uh, adjacent in the color spectrum. One's 400, the other's like 440, 410, something like that nanometers. Um, They—they'll—they'll uh, they'll do really well in clear water. They'll get filtered out in the estuary pretty quickly. But it's not like you're throwing from 100 feet away in brown water to tarpon anyway. If you're in off-colored water, you're—you're you're getting right up on that fish and maybe throwing 10 feet away. Right? Um, so you know it, it's going to get seen well against most backgrounds. The time it probably doesn't get seen that well is away from a setting sun. If the if the sun's at your back and the fish is faced away from you, you're viewing against a dark background there, it would be like putting a black sheet of paper on a black wall. Probably yeah. not going to see it that well. That's where, you know, we talk a lot about at- dawn and dusk fishing and why dawn and dusk are so special. So at dawn and at dusk light changes by 10 times every five to 10 minutes. Right. So think about that. So 10 times dimmer or brighter depending on dawn and dusk every couple minutes. And so you're you're basically changing by 10,000 units of light in 45 minutes. Yeah.
1: I remember this conversation. I we had this conversation years ago. And it was, yeah. it, was a, it was a lot about muskie, but it was also striped bass. It was also brown trout uh observing hatches. And yep. there's a there there's definitely a period of where the light goes away. And you I was just like you blew my mind and it was like, obviously it's, it was common sense stuff, but you, you, you really opened my eyes to this. It's like, there is this, there's a period where you're just crushing them that last 30 minutes, 45 minutes to an hour before it gets mm-hmm. dark. Yep. And then everything just stops yep. and you can explain that later, but then you wait a little bit and, yep. and then things can pick back up. A lot of people yep. leave. Um, so let's talk about
0: that. Can I, I want to, this is, this is relative and it's a question. So there was, um, there was a book out there that was done by an ophthalmologist called what fish see
2: Colin Kageyama. Yeah.
0: That would be it. So one of the things I can remember, I read that book a while back and totally fascinating. um, and uh, one of the things that he said and if I again I get this wrong, I'm used to being wrong but relative to the cones and rods in a fish's eye, predatory fish have the ability to switch over quicker than forage species. Because their eyes are more developed for predatory reasons. And that was one of the assumptions that he made during that witching hour that y'all are talking about, that the, the, the prey items are a little bit more susceptible to predation because the predator's eyes it's and i guess it's equivalent to like we walk into a dark room you flip the light switch on and it takes that second for your eyes to adjust or you know vice versa um is there any truth in that i've, so, I've always um, wondered that
2: so so i i don't i don't i wouldn't phrase it the way it was said there, but I think there, there's we're nibbling on some concepts that are probably pretty close to the what, what's likely happening. And I'll say that I don't know the answer as to whether one species changes over faster than another. Um, so cones provide you color vision, and your they let you see the wavelengths of light, i.e. color. Um, <clears throat> and so the more of those you have in, in different, each one is going to have to pick a pigment. So you have green cones, you might have red cones, you might have blue cones, et cetera. Um, and they basically are binary. They fire, if, if the, le- the correct light is received, they fire an electrical signal, right? So you can think of them as like pixels in the eye, if you will. And then you're trying to form an image of megapixels of lots of pixels. So you have these cones packed in your eye and they need bright light. Cones are how you read the newspaper. They're how you see fine details. They're how, you know, your optometrist, you're working in cone world there. Human rods are pretty crappy as, you know, you flip the light switch at night. And you're blind, right? Your cat and your dog see better than you do. And you kind of know that the couch is that big gray thing that you stumble over. So when you see the big gray thing, you know, not to step over there in the middle of the night on your way to the bathroom, right? Uh, but your, your nighttime vision is terrible because primates are about daytime vision and we are about our cones, right? And in, in fish, um, you know, depending on whether you're a bright light, shallow dwelling creature or a deep reef associated species, you're going to play with the numbers and ratios of rods and cones. And that's a little bit controlled by phylogeny, by your evolutionary history for your group of fish. Uh, and it can be tweaked a little bit throughout life. So in Salmon, it's an salmonids, of Salmon. trout that are born in rivers or salmon that are born in rivers go out to the ocean, come back. They can actually turn on and off. And so they turn on and off the ability to see UV and they appear to turn on and off the ability to see red. Uh, so that they're not wasting energy when it's not needed. And that's really remarkable stuff done by some really bright people out in the Pacific Northwest, not my research. Uh, so the, what you're talking about there with the switching rods and cones is we call retinal um, uh, movements. In other words, we're, we're, set, we're changing over the photoreceptors. Uh, there's a pigment layer that covers the rods to protect them because can, they can get damaged if the light's too bright. And at the right light intensity, that pigment layer retracts, exposing the rods. So uh, let's just talk about dusk for simplicity. It's getting dimmer as you go. And so dusk is so remarkable, I think. And this is some really good optics behind this from guys at Duke, Sanka Johnson. I've published a little bit on this subject. Uh, so really smart people have thought about this who are much more mathematical, uh, and, and much more philosophical, uh, in their approach. And I'm a little bit more, you know, I'm more of a fisherman to them. They're, they're really, you know, optical physicists who are just really, really scary bright. Terrifyingly bright. Um, What's happening at dawn and dusk is the sun is at low angle. So dusk, we're going to use dusk as our example. Sun is at low angle. And as that sun falls, the object is getting side lit more than it's getting top lit. Light coming from the sun at noon is a thousand times brighter moving down through the water column than it is sideways or coming up. So at noon, if I stuck a perfect mirror in the water column, mirror side down, and you got underneath it, the mirror would leave a shadow. Because a light bouncing up from the bottom is a thousand times dimmer than the light coming down from the sun. Even a perfect mirror, which doesn't exist, but if a, a perfect mirror would still leave a shadow. So everything leaves a silhouette period, right? Okay. So there's that, there's that concept. Everything leaves a silhouette. And so you're getting side lit by the sun and you know that most prey are countershaded, dark over light. And that works if you're viewed from above. So a bird flying down, looking at a herring is going to see a blue back or a purple back herring on a blue background. And that, Herring is blue on its back because it is going to try to hide against the ocean. And it's white underneath for the fish looking up so that they look more like the sky, with the caveat that it's still leaving its silhouette. And if you look at a lot of herrings, they're very laterally compressed, uh, and so they're not leaving a lot of visual silhouette from below, right? But as you get to dusk, all those rules get thrown out the window because um, that object is that the herring is basically silver on its side with a dark bluish purple stripe on the back or greenish stripe on the back. Put that on a white background. So so think about taking a herring and put it on a white background. That's what looking into the setting sun is. You're looking into the light. The background is super bright. You've got this silvery herring, so the bottom of the fish wouldn't be as obvious contrast-wise. The back of the fish would be dead obvious. The same optical mechanism that protects that animal at noon by countershading it is its weakness at dusk. Half of it is 100% visible from one angle, looking into the sun. Let's flip it around. Let's say that that prey item is uh, the sun's at the predator's back. You're looking down the sun into the setting dark part. Now you're viewing that herring against a black background or a dark background. Its white belly gives it away. Its dark back fades into the background. Its white belly gives it away. So dawn and dusk break countershading for that magical 45 minutes until light gets so limiting that the cones can't form an image and the rods and cones have to turn over. Schooling is a visual process, so the prey fish want to stay schooled because there's safety in numbers. I don't have to be faster than the bear. I just have to be faster than Blaine after I club him across the shins when I'm running away from a bear, right? So in a school of prey, There's safety in numbers, and it's the dumb and the slow and the unlucky that get eaten. You're safer around a bunch of buddies, right? And so prey fish want to stay schooled, and at night, of course, humans are pretty blind. We turn the lights on. So dock lights, bridges, you know, there are lights, and so the prey tend to flock into those lights, and then predators are just kind of lurking in the shadows waiting for someone to get too close to the edge. All of you have taken walks at night, and you can see into someone's house. Not that you should be looking. That's your own business. Um, but you can peek into somebody's house and see way better into someone's house at night than you could from the bathroom looking out, right? So predators are in that shadow line look, or outside in the shadows looking in just waiting for someone to make a mistake. And that allows some species to feed at night that normally wouldn't be able to feed. And that happens through two basic mechanisms, point sources of light, like dock lights, or the general skyline illumination. And everybody, you know, you've been out fishing before and you need to go to Walmart because something broke in the boat or whatever. How do you know where Walmart is? Well, you drive around on a foggy or overcast day and you can see all of a sudden it's like a thousand times brighter over yonder, right? A mile down the road, you can see the, the, the sky is glowing. You know where Walmart is, right? That whole concept in all of our cities... Sends all that skylight, all that light up to the sky, shining up the night sky, making the adjacent aquatic habitat brighter. And in Seattle, where this work is, some really, really smart folks have looked at changes in the food web dynamics in some of the lakes out there over time as Seattle's built out. And so we can now see the cutthroats in the lakes feeding using their cones at night when they wouldn't be able to. The prey are able to school. The predators are able to feed at night when normally schools would break up and no one would be eating. We have changed the ecosystem and, the, and life has adapted around us. We know that lights disrupt sea turtle migrations and insect migrations. And the study of artificial light at night or allen, in water is in its infancy. There's just a couple people thinking about it. And I think that's a major growth area for, for science. So dusk is magic because it breaks those the rules about predators and prey. So what is it, from a predator's perspective, how do you maximize your chances of seeing food in your 45 minutes at the buffet? The answer to that question, based on some modeling work, is that you change your angle relative to the sun. You swim in circles. You look into the sun, you look away from the sun. You look, so the predators are on a search pattern relative to the sun, looking into and away from to break camouflage. Nobody can be camouflaged. All camouflage strategies are breaking down as light is changing 10 times every five minutes. There's just, there's no way to not be vulnerable, right? Until you run out of light. Flip the script for dawn, it's the exact opposite. Until it gets too bright and countershading works again. So that's what's so magic about it. That's what I think is happening more than rods and cones adjusting quickly, differentially in species. I don't, I don't know that that work has been done, but I think if you step back and look at the general optics, and this gives us lessons as fishermen. If you're presenting a fly to a fish with the sun at your back, versus with the sun in your face at dawn or at dusk, a bonefish on a flat, for example, you can sort of think about what is going to make that fly stand out. What would the trigger be faced into the sun in the morning versus what would the trigger be faced away from the sun in the evening? And you can switch your flies accordingly. But, of course, what if the fish turns around? But the bonefish I fish for tend to be very famous for for changing their direction mid-cast. So (laughs) if I tie it on the fly for one optical condition and that bastard moves mid-cast, then I'm just, you know, SROI.
1: Yeah, well, we could see. So this is, I mean, this is what I'm. I'm so excited to be that you're sharing this, and it's why I love you so much. Is um, the stuff, and it changed my way of approaching predator fish in these time frames. Um, it, it, I would start looking and targeting certain parts of the river for musky at the certain at the way the sun and how they were going to see it. You know, and 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 take advantage uh, of those exact same things, and it, mm-hmm. it changed everything. And mm-hmm. You know, I've talked about that in some of the talks and it kind of blew people's minds. But I mean, when you taught me this year, I don't know, 15, 20, I don't know how long it's been. It's been a long time. And it really changed the way I start approaching predators, especially during these these prime feeding times. Um, Obviously, when you have schooling fish, it's different. But I'm talking about solo predators, solo Mm -hmm. prey items, like big brown trout could be smallmouth bass. It could be any of that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, It changed my thought process and how I'm going to attack these fish because that's basically what you were doing. And it also changed the way my designs, my design thought process would be on the flies that I made. And Mm -hmm. that's why this is why I wanted to have you on here because I'm, I'm hoping that everybody that's listening to this, it really resonates how important it is to really think about the whole process. You know, and you've got to. I mean, it's this is this is good shit, man. It really is. I appreciate
2: that. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, you think about it for for trout and and how many of our hatches are happening in the last you know, hours of light, and and how is that item being viewed? You're viewing up against the sky, but the same drift of your dry fly or your merger might be sunlit, or it might be, is it being viewed against the sky? Is it being viewed against an overhanging tree, against some reeds, against a log? You know, the, what are the optics there? And And each of you, I'm sure anyone listening here who's ever thrown a dry fly into a glare of a setting sun knows that you don't want a white post in that situation. You want a black post. Right. You can see that black post much better in the white glare facing, casting directly upstream into a setting sun. So it's the same concept. Or if you're driving in a fog, you know, the white car might be hard to see, but that black car, you're going to see from further away, depending on whether you're driving into or away from the sun. I learned this in Florida, driving into and out of rainstorms. And as soon as the, you know, the sky opens between two and four o'clock in, in the, in August in St. Pete, and then you're <laughs> driving west into the sun you can't see a damn thing, but you can sure see that black car in front of you. And so you start yeah. thinking about, well, what would a fish see in a similar circumstance? Uh, and again, I, I'm not guaranteeing you this is going to catch you any more fish, but maybe somebody hears this and maybe they tie on a fly different than what they would have tried. And maybe they have success that day. So maybe it helps. Or maybe it just paralyzes you and you end up sitting on the bank and cracking a beer instead because it's too much to think <laughs> about. I'm not trying to complicate your fishing. I'm just trying to do ideas. I mean, you know what yeah. I
1: mean? It's fine. Yeah. You can dive yeah. into it as much as you want. That's what makes it so great. I mean, you can. Yeah. And, and you know, for me, I've made it into my livelihood. So, I, you know, yeah. Uh, my wallet was directly uh, related to how well we did on the water. <laughs> so, yeah. you know.
2: so Blaine, if you're fishing at night on the surface, are you throwing black or are you throwing white?
1: Oh God, this is a trick question. Uh, so I'm always, and I've always, all right. So I've done both. Recently, I just did a fish. I'm not going to say where I was because I, I just, I don't kiss the tail, but um, I, and I had some black flies, but I chose to do white. And I did fine. And this was not on the surface. This was sinking lines and fishing deeper water, heavy currents and whatnot. And they, but I had some uh, anglers throwing conventional tackle that were using. Uh, some one was using black, one was using white. So I mean, I have done both. I prefer on the surface to use black. I mm-hmm. always have. Um, I don't know that. I'm, I feel like I'm going to get caught here, but I've I've always used black on the surface at night. Always have. Um, mm-hmm. and streamer fishing like underwater, I've kind of, I, I I haven't really found black or white. I've always used black just because I figured black silhouette, whatever, dirty water, whatnot, black is going to have better profile. It's going to, you know, it's, it's just going to have, but to me, it's more about the movement at that mm-hmm. point and mm-hmm. how you fish it more mm-hmm. than the color. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to protect myself here because I don't want to look like a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> that was, uh,
2: you know, that was a really good uh, backtracking word salad, but there's a lot of wisdom in it for sure. So the answer is it is a trick question. And viewed from below, to be honest with you, they're, they're hardly distinguishable. It doesn't matter. The they're, they're one's about 80% of the other, right? So extremes and shade really converge almost on the same visual performance in terms of their sightability from below against the sky. And it's really kind of sensitive to the moon but what's way more important than whether it's black or white is the silhouette because everything leaves a shadow and so it's the shadow the shadow that's being left so whether it's black or white make it bulky yeah fish fish bulk at night on the surface that's the answer
1: what so now we're going to get into sounds and and stuff yep. and yep. so sound could be interpreted different ways It's like how they feel it with lateral line or how yep. you know sound like talking in a boat i mean lefty always said that didn't matter a little bit He did say that one time, but I personally feel like it makes a huge difference in in, in the environment Um, uh, because I've noticed how fish will get weird. If you're talking too loud, you know, whatnot, the feeling, the vibrations are through the boat, probably whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always been, I've always tried to be quiet. It's like, it's like Larry always said, it's, it's harder to catch something that knows it's trying to be caught. Right. So, um, so we're going to get into a little bit of that, you know, like rattles, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. um, rattles could be, I used rattles personally for a movement, like on my jerk changer. I put a rattle in there to make the fly imbalanced. It mm-hmm. makes it kind of do crazy erratic motions because I don't want any of my streamer type patterns to swim um, in a in a constant mechanical motion. I feel like. Predatory fish react more positively to what I throw at them, based on how erratic it will move in the water. Panicked, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So people have always said, "Well, my fly is kind of swimming sideways and doing this, and doesn't swim perfect." I was like, "That's exactly what I want."
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, it's not. It's not. You don't want your fly to look like everything else. You don't want mm-hmm. it to look healthy. That's my mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm. So let's get into some of this now.
2: Um, All right. So you are one hundred percent right. The fish, most fish can't hear rattles. So you talked a little bit about sound. So sound is just a vibration, right? And, and lateral lines and ears all just pick up on different kinds of vibration. Lateral lines work super low frequency um, and mostly by particle motion rather than pressure waves. So there's two components of sound. There's particle motion. There's pressure waves. Uh, humans have a pressure-based ear. If I get really creepy close to you, like like we get up like right behind your neck and talk to your ear, you'll actually feel the particle motion, and you'll probably the hair on your neck will probably stand up. Uh, if I stand close enough to you and swing a baseball bat, you'll hear the whoosh of the baseball bat. That's particle motion. But if I step back a hundred feet from you and swing the bat, you won't hear the whoosh of the bat. Right. So the particle motion falls off really quickly with distance. And what's left is the pressure sound, right? So like if you get dive-bombed by a bird, you hear both and it gives you the creeps because you're not used to hearing particle motion, right? All fish hear particle motion. Some, a very limited amount of them can actually pick out sound pressure. What this means is most fish hear from an annoying alarm clock at the upper end to James Earl Jones's voice on the lower end. You, before rock music and headphones, could hear from below 100 hertz up to... Uh, 20 kilohertz, way above sopranos hitting high notes, almost a dog whistle territory. Everybody has that weird uncle who can still hear the dog whistle. That's really at the upper extent for a big dog whistle, the, the, the upper extent of someone who has treated their ears well and has great genetics. Of course, if you're like me and you like a lot of bass in your music and you listen to loud music and you spend enough time on boats, you start to lose that upper end and you start to lose your ability to filter voices. So my wife, Karen, she's a saint, but I have a hard time hearing her in restaurants. So sometimes I can't pick her out against the background. And as you get older, that gets harder and harder because your your ears are changing and degrading with your lived experience. Most fish can't even hear that kind of ruckus. They can hear up to maybe an alarm clock sound, an annoying alarm, but nothing higher than that. So if you were playing a soprano, singing a full blast, and only sound was a soprano a cappella, fish in the boat around you wouldn't hear it. What they are going to hear are the cooler lid slamming, the anchor dragging on the bottom, the beer you dropped, stuff like that they're going to hear.
1: You you don't think they're going to hear. So you don't think they're going to hear that thumping of the bass? Uh, of oh, so, absolutely, you know?
2: absolutely, they'll hear that. Yeah, right, low so frequency. Having absolutely. music
1: on your boat is not a good idea. Well, I wouldn't or, be blasting me. It could be an attractant, well, right?
2: So in in blue water, I swear to you that my catch rates for marlin in, in Venezuela were higher when we played Shaggy on the boat, yeah. or oh, Jack I Johnson. I-
1: we make fun of this all the time, but Kobe fishing. I mean, we play that kind of stuff all the time, and it seems like they just kind of, they show up, man. It's yeah. uh,
2: and the low, low frequency, I agree with, but human talking voices. I mean, your voice and mine—they're in like the 400 hertz range, maybe a little bit lower, maybe 300. Right? Fish can hear that really well. Uh, a, a child's voice probably not going to hear that well, right?
1: Um, and a lot of guys getting. How about a loud right. laugh or, or like – Yeah, a, I mean possibly. Yeah. It depends on how
2: you laugh. If you're one of those high-pitched, like, whiny laughers, then maybe not. But, you know, a standard belly laugh. Yeah, sure. But uh, the sound-water interface takes about 30 dB off of a sound. Yeah. So if you're standing on a above the water, you know, of course your boat kind of connects you to the water. But uh, yeah. voices are not really what I worry about mostly. What I worry about is, is hygiene on the boat, is your cooler lid flapping or the oars slapping. Against yep. the boat, or in the grommets, do you have something is, is the is the leading post flopping back and forth. That's what they're going to hear for sure. Or the you hear the pop, the plop of your fly, something like that. Yeah. So, um, on the boat. <coughs> so lateral lateral lines are about low frequency water displacement, right? The Hearing happens in the otoliths, the ears, oto meaning um, bone and lith meaning stones. So they're the ear bones. They're in the head, and some species have special connections between the swim bladder and the ear. All of your carp and catfish do. So if you're carp fishing, those guys are like superheroes for fish, right? Striped bass, boring and not that good for hearing, right? They'll hear just about like everybody else. They're fairly average. Croakers and drums hear a little bit better at the low frequencies because that's where they sing to each other. They actually sing to each other like birds do. They use sound to communicate. Anyone who's ever caught a croaker knows what I'm talking about. You catch a big black drum and pop it in your lap and it goes that 180 hertz, boom. You know, yeah. that reverb like you hear in the movies, right? As the movie's about to start, that goes right through you into the boat. That's an yeah. eerie feeling, especially when the one under the boat that you don't know is there answers back.
1: Oh, I've eerie done that feeling. quite a bit. I've done yeah. that quite a bit when I've spooked them, you know, cast yeah. it to them. Yeah, uh, You know, both end do that a lot as well. Pretty amazing. Yeah, so, I love we, that.
2: you know, from a scientific perspective, we know what about 2% of all fish hear. And that's one of the things I do in my lab is I'm set up to do fish hearing. I work a lot on croakers and drums and what they hear uh, and how, you know, that may be uh, affected by human activities and, and stuff like that. But I'll tell you that they don't hear rattles. Most fish will not hear the rattle, uh, the, the, especially the small glass rattles we put in worms or some of the small fly tying rattles. If you shake them back and forth, you're getting that shaky, shaky sound. And the fundamental frequency of that is like two, kilo, two kilohertz. So at the upper end or beyond what a fish can hear. some of them. What like about these lures,
1: the bigger lures that have the much louder sound?
2: Yeah, uh, so clacking or slamming of large metal pieces together might be good. If they're large enough, but then who wants to throw, you know, two tungsten, four mil tungsten beads on a fly slamming into each other? You're talking about throwing eight millimeters of tungsten. That might take your ear off doing that, right? Or, you know, something, you want large slapping. Better than that, you want chugging of water or for a subsurface fly, and this is where your tying has certainly converged, you want that amplitude wobble displacement. Yeah, I say all that. I tell you fish don't hear rattles, and one of my favorite, if I'm throwing gear at a redfish, it's going to be a red and white rattle trap. They don't see the red. And they don't hear the rattle, but I've had so much success in my life with that with that lure that I'm going to throw that if I'm throwing gears.
1: It's exactly right. If you
2: think about the rattles, and and this is I'm glad you said wobble at the beginning of all of this section, is you've got the weight, the center axis is getting thrown off as the beads wobble from flank to flank. So you're getting a more erratic behavior. What you don't want is a constant retrieve. And I fish with you often enough to know that you abhor, you absolutely abhor constant retrieves. You hate nothing more than the constant strip, 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 strip. You've got people jerking in my hands every single way and I'm sore for like three days after I fish. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm just trying to do be as erratic as I can be. Make make your articulated Uber movement fly do even more weird jerky things. For yeah. that very reason, right? And then you're just trying to throw erratic, panicked waves, right? A panicked bait fish isn't going to sit there and swim at a metered approach. It's not going to be orderly and you know do synchronized swimming in perfection it's going to be getting the hell out of dodge any way it can throwing vibrations all over the place it's like watching a bunny run you ever watch a rabbit run away from you you can't tell which way in the middle of the
1: interstate didn't know which way to go they just stand up they just stand up or that's left right left right up down whatever Same
0: uh andrej i have a i have a rabbit in my yard that we call the magic bunny because my dogs haven't gotten it yet yeah yeah and that that thing that thing should be in <laughs> Greyhound races. I it's like Barry no Sanders, I, right?
2: No. Barry idea Sanders how was part rabbit. Left. Right? That guy, like his hips are moving in ways human hips shouldn't have moved. It was the most remarkable thing. I was I was a I was a kid back then. But anytime you watch I mean yeah. just like his moves had moves. I don't understand how he did it. He was like part rabbit. I get it. And so <sighs> any any way you can fish that way, I would rather have a fish miss and miss and miss on my retrieve because I know he's there and I know he wants it. He's just looking for that mistake right? Then, then yeah. a fish never even show itself because I bored it to death with a metronomic retrieve. And I think that's where the rattles come in, where rattles can be useful. So, so try this on your time, especially if you're fishing flowing water, right? Think about the upstream and the downstream side. Think about your favorite spot you want to fish and how you set up relative to the current and play with putting the rattle off, off center on one side or the other. Can you get a fly to kick downstream? Can you get it to wobble upstream? If you intentionally tie your fly slightly off center and you're getting interest but refusals, you throw that erratic wobble in there, do you do better? And that may take some tinkering because your, your first four attempts are probably going to spin a 360, or at least mine do. Right? I've tied more flies that fish exactly wrong than I have flies that fish right in the, in the like R&D phase. Me, yeah. yeah. me too. And, you know, like, like Early in the Game Changer days, I was convinced that, that the action on the Game Changer had to come from the rear, not from the bulky head of the front. So I was convinced that putting weight on the back end of the fly or something big and soppy on the back end of the fly was going to be my answer. And I was disappointed with how this thing fished like a stick. And then you yeah. and I talked about it, and you said, no, it's all about what's happening up front. It's the bulk and the weightlessness at the back. And I went, oh, it's exactly opposite of what I would have predicted. Right? So, again, yeah. this is trial and error, and where a guy like you who spends every day on the water and can tie the, you know, 10 different versions and test each one versus I've got to wait you know until next week or the week after before I can get out on the right patch of water to do it, uh, this is, you know, your your lab is, is the ocean and, and your lab it's a huge advantage.
1: River. It's a it's a huge advantage. I mean, it's a, it's, a, yeah. it's. I've always viewed it as a giant classroom, and you either take don't. advantage of it or not. You can choose to learn or you don't choose to learn. Right. Um, and so, you know. so
2: like popping corks, you're talking about rattles. I, I have opinions. I love popping corks for spotted sea trap. If I'm if I'm on vacation down there and I want to eat some fish for dinner, right? And I'm going to throw shrimp under a popping cork. I have definite opinions about what characteristics I want in my popping. And there's ones that I'll buy and ones that I will never buy because I want the clacking and the large gunk and water displacement. It's that large water displacement that, that lateral lines are picking up. And that's what you're triggering with the way your game changer fishes and with the erratic way in which you fish. You know, Kelly Gallup, same sort of concepts a lot of his flies, the, the drunken disorderly patterns, same sort of thing. You want that flathead, erratic, wobbling action. There's lots of different ways to get at that behavior. On the surface, a good chunk or a chug Low frequency carries a long way. Low frequency sound travels a long way in water. And yeah. so, I mean, an airplane or something crashing in the ocean, in the middle of the open ocean, is going to draw animals from hundreds of miles away. It just takes a little while right, for them to get there. But um, hearing is a way to hear things from far away. Those billfish that fire up in your spread are coming from 140 meters down somewhere. They heard the sound, they turned their head, they saw the shadow. They popped yeah. up behind it, and then they see what you're trolling behind the boat. So what you're trolling behind the boat only matters once the fish has already made the decision to come up and check you out, but other things made you made it come check you out, and so that's yeah. where you know fishes are switching senses on and off, and the cue is is different senses with distance to the prey on. Yeah, this
1: stuff and that's and that's condition
2: specific, That's species specific, condition specific, circumstance specific.
1: Yeah, it's amazing stuff, dude. I love it. I find this stuff fascinating. I could listen to this forever, um, and. you got more time or you sure yeah okay cool um so let's get let's get back a little bit to uh some of the vision stuff too because you know i always kind of got specific with you with certain fish and you know you know their rods and cones and how they saw things i mean obviously ambient light and depths and all that stuff change but uh you know things that i visually saw especially starting out in trout fishing and, and we talked about this years ago Um, When Harry Steves and and, uh, Ed Koch uh, taught me years ago about fluorescent orange, Mm -hmm. right? So, Mm -hmm. um, and it was phenomenal how you could take an orange that made a regular orange on an ant. And I looked at, and I just couldn't believe it. It was phenomenal how well this fluorescent orange worked on and I, I hope I'm I, you know I I don't mind talking about it now because I don't do it as much, but it's it's unreal how the difference in these fish reacted to this color mm-hmm. over regular orange. Like if you look at a flore- like an like an orange ant, a real orange ant, and I and I did this years ago and held him against the sun, mm-hmm. and I, it was amazing how brilliant that orange got. It, it was glowing,
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: So. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we've talked about UV light and and whatnot. We're going to move into that next. But uh, what's your what's your feeling on this fluorescent thing? Because I have personally <laughs> seen that, like putting a fluorescent orange uh, thorax on a sulfur, um, you know, uh, th- fluorescent orange on ants and whatnot. And and I, I have seen with a, a same say same angling skills, right? I've seen a ten to one difference on how fish react to it. In a positive way, over over say just a standard orange.
2: So, what is what is fluorescence?
1: (laughs) scientifically, I don't really know. But fluorescence to me, you think of it as
2: bright, really bright color. That's like something a construction worker. I
1: I look at it as a translucent, bright. uh, Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, like something a construction worker
2: would wear. Right? You know it when you see it. Right? So, fluorescence really what what it means is it takes it is a pigment in the dye. That takes light from other wavelengths and reflects it as something brighter, right? So it's it's getting energy from blue and from red and from other wavelengths of light and making your chartreuse brighter, so that at, with depth when light becomes limiting, it still looks chartreuse. Colin Kageyama's What Fish Book. He took a bunch of lures down. He was also selling a color system for maps. I think one a color deciding system the back into that book, and he had a product out of the market for how do you pick which color you should fish. Uh, but he has photos taken at depth of various fluorescent and non-fluorescent lures, and you can see the fluorescent lure has better color fidelity. It looks the same way or more like it does on the surface at depth. So you're drawing from other wavelengths to intensify a color. And in fact, we use it in laundry, right? Uh, the, the laundry detergent you use for whites has titanium-based pigments that make your whites brighter, right, for that very reason. It's using all the energy of the sun to make your color you know, Deglo works by a somewhat similar principle, a little bit different because there's some phosphorescence going on there, but it's the same sort of getting energy from something to make it UV. So from the UV reflectance standpoint or from the fluorescence standpoint, we talking about two different things with UV, right? So the UV2 products from Spirit River and other similar concepts with other vendors. Most game fish don't see ultraviolet in the size ranges you want to catch them. So trout, for example, will see ultraviolet up to about 60 grams, so three to four inches. Ultraviolet helps you see clear prey items. It makes the clear grass shrimp not clear because a a translucent prey item has to make a choice. Do I let all wavelengths pass through me, in which case ultraviolet is sunburning my internal organs, and I either have to have great DNA repair mechanisms or I'm going to have a very short life? Or do I block just the ultraviolet so I look translucent to almost everybody, but not to a predator that sees ultraviolet? So weak fish, common prey item in the middle, or predator in the Mid-Atlantic, gray trout, weak fish, are one of the few uh, local adult species who see in Chesapeake Bay, they can see ultraviolet. What do they eat? Anchovies, mycid shrimp, grass shrimp. Occasionally they'll eat a menhaden, right? But they're really chunking down on anchovies, which are mostly translucent to your eye to mine, and mycids at night. Mycids are cryptic little shrimp that hide during the day and then get up in the water column at night. And so you look at weak fish, when do they feed? From dusk to dawn. They're mostly nighttime feeders. If you look at them at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you clean one. I used to go on research cruises. When you gut one at 3 in the morning, at three in the afternoon, its stomach is empty. They're not eating midday. Their eye is a dim light, low light eye, right? So there, they have clued in. They're able to see prey items who are blocking ultraviolet by having the ability to see in that color. And birds and bees see ultraviolet as well. Some fish do when they're little, but when you get to be big enough, number one, ultraviolet's bad for your eye. And number two, you know, when you look at a window and you see a window screen, you have to look through the screen to see outside. And right. life in water is looking at life through a window screen. It's the little particles. Do you want to see those particles? If you're a striped bass, adult striped bass, and you want to find menhaden, do you really care about all the little things in your field of vision that aren't menhaden? No, you want to not see those, right? Because number one, it's not ruining your eye. It's not causing DNA damage to your eye. And number two, it's just another particle you'd have to look through. There's no reason to want to see ultraviolet there. Right. So you see a lot of fish turn it off as they get to be bigger and eat more colored up prey items that aren't translucent. They turn it off, except for some of those fish that migrate, seem to turn it on. So we believe that salmonids, migratory salmonids, so salmonids and tunas and things like that have the ability to presumably use some component of the light field associated with ultraviolet and polarization sensitivity to figure out where they are in the world as a geolocation strategy. And again, the science on this is pretty young, and there's some insanely bright people who work in this, uh, in this field who will tell you far more about it and will probably correct me in my shorthand shortcuts I'm taking and explaining this to you. There's some Some of the smartest people I know are working on how fish do this kind of stuff. And there's a lot of interest. The most complicated visual system you're going to find in the ocean that we know of are mantis shrimp. Some of the tropical coral reef mantis shrimp have 18 visual pigments and can see linear and circular polarized light. And they see the world in ways you wouldn't even understand. And uh, the Department of Defense has been studying them for precision-guided munitions for 20-something years. How can we learn from their visual systems how to, you know, make um, dot, dot, dot? I'll just stop there because I don't have yeah. security clearance. Uh, yeah. You know, using that, studying them and, and, and finding, uh, I guess the phrase I'm looking for is biologically inspired design. Right, so complicated visual system there from a seemingly weird animal you probably don't interact with very often, right? But yet has such a weird because they're they're hunting at night and they were able to see in color and all kinds of information from light that you and I don't conceive. Fish are a lot simpler. Most fish aren't going to see the UV. And in fact, if you were to buy a UV a UV lure, a truly UV lure at a at a fly shop or at a bait shop, Bass, Bass Pro or some place like that, it wouldn't look any different to you. You can't see ultraviolet unless you're a person who's had cataract surgery and had a certain kind of lens put in your eye that allows you to see UV, you don't see UV. We block it because we don't want it ruining our retina. So because of that, a lot of the things that are marketed as UV are truly just violet. They're just purple enough that it looks like there's some cool purple sheen on it, but it's not actually UV. Uh, And of course, UV has taken the fishing world by storm, and there's good products, and there's products that are kind of pandering on our hopes and dreams of what UV might be. I use a lot of the UV glues. I think they're great. They're actually at generally around 405 nanometers. And so um, they're more in the violet. When you turn your your uh, lamp on, you can see, don't stare into it, I wouldn't. But when you turn it on, you can see that it's blue. And that's partly for safety because you need to know that it's on. Uh, but also because light is a bell curve and sound is also a bell curve. And so when we say it's 405, that's part of the curve. It may not be the peak. So a lot of those glues, you know, you hold, you can't use your UV. I learned this when this stuff came out, I, I like tying outside. So I'm sitting on the banks of the Delaware river tying. And then all of a sudden it glued up the second I put her on the fly and then it gunked up the tip. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? Oh, duh. I'm outside in sunlight. Right.
1: Getting the shade, I, man. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Like think about it. Right. Um, or, or tie inside your car or something, right? Um, so from, I, I'm not trying to say that UV is useless. UV can be very useful, particularly the fluorescence parts. And, and anybody who's ever fished a chartreuse fly knows what I'm talking about, right? If it's truly fluorescent, you can see it way down farther in the water column. That means a fish can see it from further away. So of the UV2, UV1 is what's important. It's the, it's the reflectance. It's the fluorescence ability and it, the ability to, to use UV to make a color brighter. That's the interesting part, not actually seeing in the UV. Um, there are some fish that as adults can see in the UV for where it may matter, but for most of the game fish you're going to target on the Atlantic coast, it's not going to matter. It's not the UV that's the reason you caught that fish. It's not seeing the UV that's the reason you caught that fish.
1: Right. Okay. That's that's good stuff, man. That's really good stuff. So dirty water, light, refraction, all that kind of stuff, say, so, you know, um, like, UV disappears
2: very quickly in turbid water. It's gone in inches Immediately, in turbid yeah. water. So, if the water the water's off color, your UV isn't penetrating at all. So, just throw that out the window. And you know I, I, and I've always thought you need to fish like a chartreuse or a black in muddy water. And certainly, I've had a lot of luck on some of the Virginia rivers. in you know, they jump their banks that you tend to fish when they're high. And you know what I'm talking about. Yep. Pounding the banks of in grassy banks with large black things. But I've caught more fish, believe it or not, fishing tan in yep. brown muddy water because it's about just hitting a fish in the face and it's about a numbers game and so rather than ripping streamers on that river i'll actually euro the scenes along the bank and just yep. put a tan mop or uh, a worm fly or something like that and just if, it can, if it's going to be in the sphere of influence of the fish you're going to find them it's rather yep. than trying to call the fish to my fly i am just trying to play a numbers game and hit the fish in the face And I found out that I was able of
1: wear longer and
2: and just, just chunking eight to 12 feet of stream bottom and just again and again and again. And you'd be amazed and you learn about where the fish stack and you'll find five or six, you know, trout of a day stacked up in the same 12 feet of water because they're out of the current and, and it's a little back eddy that wouldn't be obvious if you weren't looking for it. And it's just where the little prey items are going to end up and they're just sitting there just hoping something hits them in the face and you can get that reaction. Versus a lot of predatory the,
1: fish like that, you know. I think, well, fish are they, they, lazy,
2: right? They're lazy, yeah. and not stupid. The, the The price of being stupid and wasting more energy on the food on food than you get from it is starvation, and that's why a lot of stocked fish don't survive. They get picked off by birds and anglers quickly. But the ones that do, a, a good portion of them starve to death because they're used to swimming long distances to eat. Because let's face it, a hatchery breeds for aggression. There's the quick and the hungry in the hatchery. You're either on the first kerplunk you hear and you fed that day or all your brothers and sisters ate and you're starving and you're going to die. You're never going to survive to grow, right? So hatchery weird fish tend to be more aggressive, tend to swim longer distances for food, and only a small portion of them actually survive the first winter and then recruit to the local population because they figured out how to be a little bit more careful. Yeah. Well, that's
1: that's really kind of part of some of the things I learned, like a muskie. He's like, you know, you get these long follows that made no sense at all. It's like, why Mm -hmm. are they following? And I had, you know, part of this evolution of my designs, you know, I went through a period where just a lot of follows. And the T-bone, for example, is a prime example of me finally getting something that continued to work, that started working, right? But 50% of our eats were at the boat because it still didn't have enough built-in triggers mm-hmm. that made that fish want to eat it as soon as they saw it. Right. So that's when the game changers started coming in because I could I could impart that that showing that flank, showing the side to side motion, but it yep. also had that realistic visual of profile and silhouette. And mm-hmm. it, I think it also has a realistic feel to them because it has that that serpentine movement as well. And this mm-hmm. is I don't think this is voodoo. I think this is like So I went from having 50% to 75% of my eats using your standard musky style, you know, feather tail, bucktail bodies, whatnot. Um, Any type of that fly having, you know, when you got eats, they were mostly going to be follows to the bow, figure eight stuff. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Not always, but it was 50 to 75% of that was that way. I switched Mm -hmm. to the game changer style stuff and the, the, 75% 75% of my bites were away from the boat within mm-hmm. the first 10, 10, strips of the fly. Right. Um, and I, and I, I firmly believe it's, it's, it's based, it is de- definitely based on basically what you just said on how they visually see it, feel it, and, and, and how it looks to them. Yep. in the water. Your figure
2: eight was giving them that oh. flank, right? That, that's exactly. why the figure eight works. That's why it exists. It's that, that fish is interested, it wants to eat, and it isn't until the figure eight that it gets its shot. And so <laughs> your, your eaters now that are eating your serpentine articulated flies are getting their shot before they get to the boat. They would have eaten at the boat, but they didn't have to. They were able to waste less energy and eat sooner because they got their chance.
1: Yep, that was the aha moment and for me, and that's where the name of the fly came from. You know, because mm-hmm. of that. I mean, because mm-hmm. I failed so many times with other yeah. designs. It, yep. it finally, you know, talking to you and seeing how the fish did, and then finally, kind of going back to, you know, the biologic make of the fish. You know, they're, you know, how they're designed, all that kind of stuff, and then the the baits that they feed on and how all that works is it's it's crucial. And I I don't think I mean I don't I'm not saying that I don't think I don't know, but I mean that was the that was the big driving force for me and why I called you so many times back then. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So Mm it used to drive me insane. So
2: Yeah, well, I mean, so as a fish biologist, you know, early on, you're trained to look at a fish and and often your practical exams or, or something, they'll pop fish that you've never seen from some ecosystem three quarters of the way across the planet. You have no chance of knowing what this is, but they'll ask you, how does this fish make its living? And you need to look at the fins and you need to look at the mouth and you, you know, poke around on it and see how is it built? And so I'm tortured when I look at fish to think about how they're built, right? And so when I think about designing flies for a predator, like, okay, well, how's that predator swim? Where's his mouth? What are the eyes like? Where are the eyes? Where are the eyes on the head? If I look at the fish head on, where are the eyes pointing in front? Are they really stuck out laterally? Are they high? Are they low? Are the fins swooping and upward like a jack? You know, are they kind of down here like a shark? Where uh, I'm, I'm pantomiming like your like your listeners are going to be able to see. Like I'm sitting here looking like an idiot, sticking my uh-huh. hands all over the place. These are ga- these are dance moves, man. Professional dance moves here.
1: <laughs> now you're articulating uh- it very well. I mean, I'm- so
2: so how was a fish built? So uh, you know, what? we spend as fish biologists in our early training an inordinate amount of time staring at fish. I go to aquariums. I sit down. I just enjoy. It. Of course, I have two and a half year old twins, so I can't sit down as much now as I used to because one goes that way, the other goes that way, and. My wife and I are just running around pulling our hair out. You can see that's why I'm bald. Um, but I love to just stare at a fish and ask, you know, how is it behaving? What does it do? How many times have I just put my fly rod down on a trout stream and sat and watched the fish, holding the current, watched it eat? What made it move three feet to the right to eat? It wasn't the big mayfly. Right? On the Delaware, I used to camp for a week every year on the, in the headwaters of Delaware in Hancock. And I can't tell you how many big browns I would see stick their nose on a March brown, a big size 12, size 10 March brown, and reject a natural. And you just throw your hands up and you're like, if they're rejecting a natural Big Mac, what chance do I have? But those fish can be had. They just didn't want to waste the energy. It wasn't the big prey at them. They wanted the rice cake. They wanted the French fry, not the Big Mac. It's a little blueing olive that you didn't see is what they're
1: eating. I've ran into that a lot too. I mean, it's big fish don't always eat giant, giant bugs or giant nope. baits or whatever. Nope. I mean, it's... Nope. You know, it's Larry calls it mother's milk. You know, they, they grew up, I mean, they're samplers. They grow up yep. to eat certain things and it's an easy. It's, it's what they know. You know what I mean? It's, it's like eating a bag of popcorn versus a steak. I mean, obviously, you know, if you have a bunch of, if you have a bag of popcorn, you're going to fill up, but you got to eat a lot of it. Right. Right. I mean, right. So.
2: But you'll eat that steak and you may still want a snack and you'll go grab a fistful of almonds. You know, or something exactly. like that, or that cookie or, or what have you, right? And then again, the human analogy is kind of piss poor because we're chewing our food and fish have, they have pharyngeal crushers. They can crush it up, but the packing density of a little prey item, them, you don't have to waste those using those muscles and burning those calories. If you can just filter feed mycids and swallow them, you know, um, and then to that end, if I'm, if I'm searching water in salt water if it's on a slow day, if I'm out here in Chesapeake Bay, I might throw a size eight dropper off of a stream. And I'm, I've been tinkering with my design to do it in such a way that it doesn't affect the behavior of the lead fly. And articulation is one such way. I won't get as good of a hang and pause. But if I'm doing a more active retrieve, I can pull a size 8 grass shrimp, uh, an epoxy body with model paint grass shrimp or something like that, um, behind. You'd be amazed how many big fish I've caught on that little trail and fly two feet behind. Because they on. see the big thing and they, they think about <laughs> it and go, yeah, no. And then they see this little thing like, hell, oh, I'm going to swipe i'm thus far invested but i'm not going to eat that big thing but oh here's some little okay good i get a bang for my buck yeah. Now, obviously if you're muskie fishing you may want to do that because some little six inch smallmouth bass is going to ruin your cast by eating that trailer
0: right
1: yeah, that can happen but you know but then then you can catch that small that muskie on that small bass just,
2: well yeah. yes I'm, I'm not sure the resource <laughs> management agencies want that outcome but yes
1: yeah exactly right this, this stuff is fascinating, man.
2: Yeah. Now you see a lot of stuff with UV that is like there's UV sprays and they're advertised as fish see it from 200 meters away, 600 feet away. I understand where that comes from because UV in clear water can be found down to 200 meters under perfect optical conditions. But that doesn't mean that horizontally it's going to work from 200 meters or 600 feet away. And that presupposes that the optical system of the predator can actually see ultraviolet, which is usually not the case. So... You know, be, be cautiously optimistic for, with new products. But um, at the end of the day, why it catches fish hardly matters. If it does, great. And we can sit there and have over a scotch whiskey in a campfire and debate whether it was the ultraviolet or whether it, or whether it was the rattle or the wobble, right? And ultimately, we'll never know. And it doesn't matter. And if it gives you confidence that I say, it's, I'm all for it, right? buy it. I, I buy products that I know from a sensory perspective probably aren't. It's not the way they were sold to me. That's why they work. But they work. And so I don't, I don't mess with it.
1: All right. Well, man, I, I can't thank you enough for, for being on here today. I, uh, I would like to have you back if you got yeah, time. Sure. I, I, I've sure. had you on here for almost two hours now. So, um, well, it's uh, the best part like- of my
2: day. I, I get to talk to you know, stakeholders about fish. And so, my research is relevant and interesting. And again, I learn as much from you all and, and from fisheries interactions. And uh, so, for so much of my live animal research, you know, I can't be on the water enough to fill my tanks. So, I rely on recreational fishermen who are on my permits to collect animals and call me. And then I drive around and pick up and, you know, so there's been, you know, some Virginia captains have just been fantastic resources, collecting animals, giving me free rides on their boats. And this is, you know, something small and humble I can do to say thank you. But even then it's, it's, it's not enough for the the gifts I have been given by the fishery. Um, you know, recreational Virginia anglers paid for my PhD. I say that because my funding came from the recreational fishing advisory board from saltwater license funding. Um, So Virginia has a unique mechanism where some funding of the some portion of the funding of Saltwater License Fund goes to boat improvements, dock improvements, and you know um, boat ramps to enforcement, but also some of it goes into research. And so I funded my PhD with these small grants from recreational fisheries license funds. And I did the circuit of clubs saying thank you as soon as we have data. I invited some of the folks into the lab to see experiments and sit with me at night. Um you know, to see what, what we do. And, and I go to the clubs and share the data that Virginia's anglers paid for. So, you know, to listeners of the show, if you, if you enjoy what you heard today, you know, then think about supporting science in one way or the other. And that can be something indirect and in, informal, like, like supporting buying your saltwater fishing license in Virginia so the funds can support Virginia's supermarine science and old Dominion and some of the other folks working at universities in this region. But it can also be active through crowdfunding. Um, you know, there's a lot of scientists who are working with um, some of the major fly fishing companies, Patagonia, Andy Danilchuk is one who stands out to mind, you know, some of the timing folks you know, in Montana, some of the folks, timing folks in you know, Wisconsin-Madison, Olaf Jensen's program. There's all kinds of ways that you can help people do research, you know, collecting data, crowd science, getting involved with uh, defending recreational fisheries and, and having your voice heard. There's lots of ways to say thank you. This is mine. This is my humble way. Um, and so I hope that any listener here has picked up a morsel. I don't guarantee you're going to catch more fish, but I will guarantee you'll be more interesting at trivia night. Huh.
1: Well, I'm going to say this on behalf of everybody. You know, I really thank you for all the research and work you've done. You've been a you've been a huge sounding board for me and someone I respect greatly. And you know, it's been too long since we've been together. So you probably get a knock on the door here shortly. You know, all right. Uh, well- We're going to fish together this year uh, down the way. Let's do it. The
2: more more degrees you get, the more you're seated in front of a computer and the less you get on the water. So I definitely need to rebalance that. And especially as the girls get a little bit older, we can put fly rods in their hands and and start to train the next generation. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's just going to be a bunch of old gray-haired folk fishing if we don't teach the youth. And then we're going to lose all of our fisheries in my retirement years. So it's really defensive, right? I want young people to be passionate about this stuff so that when I'm an old man, I can enjoy the fisheries that my old academic fishing partners did. Blaine, Blaine, really
0: Blaine and I talked about two hours on the phone last night about young people in the sport. I think that's, I think that's a great, kind of a great way to, uh, Towards the end of my time at Hampton
2: university, I got involved with TU and uh, stakeholder, um, whose uh, family is related to the founder of the university, about starting a fly fishing program at Hampton. I'm not at Hampton University anymore, but that program is continuing. And to get, you know, uh, Hampton being a historically black college, to get diversity on the water and to introduce fly fishing to communities that don't experience it in the same way that, that you and I would have. Right? I mean, that's the answer to the entire industry is we need more people, more passionate people on the water. And I know there's a subset of recreational fishery stakeholders and fly fishermen in particular. who don't want competition on the water. That sort of get off my lawn, crowd, uh, and and I, I, I can understand that. If you, you know, my argument to that is go find somewhere else to fish, find the new new place nobody knows about, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, there's there's all kinds of blue lines on a map. Find find a better one.
1: Exactly. Yep. Right. I agree, but I mean that's there, exactly there's why there's fish I'm here. everywhere.
2: There's fish everywhere, and you know a lot a lot of folks who like to track and fish the same exact river the same exact way. Then the catch rates go up. Does that really mean you're a better fisherman, or did you just learn what to do? Like, can you export that somewhere else or can you just fish your water well? In right. which case, you know, go to the hatchery and fish in their in their, uh, <clears throat> in their their raceway. I bet you do pretty well there. But you know, I love traveling and I love, I love trying to figure it out for myself. But I'll also say that if I'm going somewhere that I really want to fish, first two days are going to be with a guide. Yep. Yeah, because yeah. I, I have the I, I I learn so much from every guided experience, from every guide. well you know, there's great guides, and then there's guides that aren't so great. People you jive with, and people that you know the chemistry is not there. I get it, but I will I take something to make me a better fisherman from every one of those experiences. But then I also want to try it on my own. I want to <coughs> apply what I learned. Otherwise, I'm just a robot that does what I'm told. But I want to take the skills I learned for day two, day three, day four, day five, and try it on my own and see if I can reproduce it on my own. Right. Uh, so support your guides. Travel. Support your guides. Support your local fly shops. I unfortunately cannot walk into a fly shop without dropping fifty to one hundred dollars at least on materials. I, it's the first place I go, I fly bins, materials, and I'm walking out of there. And but the you know honestly, that's a small investment compared to the knowledge I've gotten from the people in the shop. Hundred um, percent. Those I those agree. conversations with stakeholders. I learned so much more from you all than I do from any book or any experiment. One hundred percent.
1: Yeah. I'm on the other side. I've, you know, I've half seen it, but I, I learn a lot from, you know, you, you, put, you, you connect the dots for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I could tell you what I see and then you, you explain it to where I start understanding it. You know what I mean? So well, I,
2: I appreciate that. You for know, that. science is really more about the questions than the answers, right? People think that we're the ones who know all the, all the stuff. We know some things. We know, certainly know some things, but really good science makes 10 times more questions than it answers. I might answer one question, but in the process, we'll reveal eight other ones that need additional study. That's the fun part. Andre,
0: all I know is I'm throwing all my rattles away. Those those things have plagued me for the end of days. And if you if you have alleviated that pain from my life, then that's that's and that's that that is. I can't even tell you it's worth a pound of gold. Um, Most annoying thing to add to a fly on God's green earth, and 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 maybe that's a little confirmation bias on my part. I'm gonna, I'm gonna i'm gonna have a little uh you know a little glass rattle burning bonfire in my backyard tonight and dance around it like uh like the neanderthal that i am
2: um yeah well uh you know it, it, it focus your investment on other parts you know, a better vice a better bobbin some more paddle tails something like that right um Better articulation strategies. Mm-hmm. Now, Blaine, you got to articulate weights now. That's that's your next thing. That's my assignment to you, is figure out how to articulate weights to enhance wobble.
1: Yeah. Hell, I'm working on some stuff, man. I got you all.
2: I got there's, there's, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a somewhat new bead style on the market where the hole is drilled off center. It's like a teardrop. Yeah. Um, I, I know that hairline carriers. I, I forget their name off the top of my head, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. The, that there's that – it's like a jig-style bead. That's, and so how can we take that concept and have it swivel on a bare hook shank?
1: Yep. Yeah. There's ways doing it. So <laughs> So I don't know. And I, I can I, tell I you that in two years, Blaine,
2: Blaine will have a whole new line of, of uh, off-center wobbling weights. Right? Because – and this, again, this is why I love our interactions because – you, you weren't limited by the possibilities of what exists. You make what you need. You invent what you need. And that's, that's why, you know, there's lots of famous fly fishing personalities throughout history, but almost none of them have done what you're doing, which is to create products to solve problems and do it again and again and again. And, you, you know, whether it's by sacrilege, I don't know whether there's a voodoo lab in your backyard or whether you go to best pro shops and, you know, someday over a scotch whiskey, I want to know what inspires you um, to, to really push that envelope. What unholy ritual you must be doing to come up with these things. Um, but, uh, but I I just think it's remarkable. And it's, you know, the fly fishing industry has grown so, the tying industry has grown so fast with these products. And it's just been so much fun to watch. And I remember our early, earliest conversations 20 years ago about the needs. And I remember creating an articulated worm pattern after one of our conversations tying mono to mono. So 80 pound base and tying little loops and making articulated worms, uh, ragworms and thinking this is great. And then on the first cast, you know, one of the loops broke and half of it sailed 60 feet along the direction. <laughs> I was like, well, that was, that's what I get for, for trying. I still walk the halls of Michael's and other you know, AC Moore and other craft stores. And I still drop an unhealthy sum of money there. Most of it, you know, doesn't end up ever turning into a fly. That's half as functional as what you designed, but I should sure try.
1: Well, I've got, I've got a, uh, probably a closet full of really bad flies, man. I, I appreciate the kind words, man. I really do, but I uh, can't thank you enough, but, but I've tied a lot of really, really bad stuff to get there you have to right you have to tie
2: ridiculous absurd horrible things and then you know only do you show them to your closest friends so that you you don't you don't want people you don't you don't open well sometimes i will actually i have a bad fly box and sometimes if somebody's asking me in an obnoxious sort of way you know kind of approaches me in a semi-negative way and i was like oh they're catching So i might open the crap box just to screw with somebody
0: i have generally speaking if you look right over my head there's a glass jar on my bookshelf Yep. That is a subtle reminder that I suck. Those are the yep. those are the those are the those are all the ones that are on dollar fifty and two dollar hooks that I don't yep. know. I glued my hands together and drank too much and looked at my vice and was like, what have I done? I gotta cut that yep. crap off and save the hook. But I have I have an yep. entire giant glass jar. So anytime I think that I'm getting good at it, I can I can look up and ground myself and be like, yep. I need to spend about 12 hours cutting all that crap off the hooks.
2: Yeah, you so just can, you hang it on can, wire and, you, and you, you start a little fire and you hang it on wire, you let it burn off. Otherwise, you're going to dull how many pairs of scissors cutting through all that. Just burn it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the hooks Sorry. won't melt. Just burn it. Yeah, just do it outside because you know, a lot of these plastic materials, you don't want to smell that mess. So
0: now, uh, I'll say this.
2: Uh, another thing that's coming up, and I don't know if it's hit your radar. I'm curious. I, I want to I talk to you because I know you guys use a lot of UV acrylic glues now is i'm seeing more and more on my social media feeds people having allergic reactions to that stuff are you guys hearing about this
1: i have i have heard a little bit about it yep yep
2: i'm curious about that because i use a little bit of it and but i tend to get it on my hands i'm a mess when i tie so i end up having to pick peel it off and and i'm curious if that's going to be what what ends up limiting its its almost exponential growth is people having medical reactions to it um, yeah. You know, the, our relationship with glues, this would be a great podcast for the future as you get the glue manufacturers on here because, you know, all of us have our favorite UV this and UV that. And some of us still use Sally Hansen's and I use all of the above. And I have a certain one particular product I use for making hot tipped squirmies. Yes, I fish squirmy worms uh, and I can put hot tips on them. But there's only one glue in the whole wide world that works to joining that stuff without melting it. And it took me $500 of glue to find this one magic glue. <laughs> uh, and then you find out that the colors bleed just like they would in your bass box. Big surprise. So oh, you right. can't, you can't do the chartreuse tips on your black squirmies and have them in your box for a season. you got to do it kind of the day of, and, and in three weeks it's going to bleed. So you pluck them off. Uh, and you got to be careful because this is a very thin glue. So if you travel with it and it spills, you just cemented a whole bag of whatever's around it.
1: Yep. I've done that a hundred percent. I do that quite often. That's so why I stopped carrying glues with me and just bought it when I got to the fly shop yep. and I was going to do my demonstration. So,
2: Yeah, I had a, a bottle of Harda's Hull Fin open on a flight once. And so I lost yeah. some really nice, really nice clothing because it, now it's like double bagged in Ziploc bags where I just go without if I'm flying.
1: <laughs> All right, man. Well, uh, I think we just hit the two-hour mark here. Right?
0: Right there at it.
2: So, no, I, can tell, I can filibuster, man. I can, I can absolutely...
0: Well, I'll tell I'll tell you what. Talk nonsense I, I feel for like Andre I, I tried to talk as little as possible. There were some things that made me jump out of my skin, so I just had to interject. But I, you know, I want to thank y'all both for for adding this incredible body of knowledge to our podcast library. And the coolest thing about podcasts is, you know, all this stuff lives forever. So people will be able to kind of listen to this and be like, "Wait, what did he say?" and rewind it. And I mean, you know, um, I won't speak for Blaine, but, you know, for me, just, you know, you just, mine is a kind of like experience my life and, and just shutting up and listening to you. I think that's one of the gifts that the good Lord gave me is I know, I know, I kind of do know when to shut up and listen. So listening, listening to you, like Blaine said, it helped me connect all some of the stuff that I. Assumed some of the stuff that I thought, you know, based on what I've seen, and you know, by and large, a lot of what you said affirmed it. There was some surprises, so that that surprises mean I learned, and I, I know the listeners are going to feel that way, and um, and I'm sure we're going to get questions and follow ups, and, and I'll tell you, we seems like you got a lot more to give, and between your twins and and your full-time gig and everything else. Love to get you on here again and and fill in some blanks. You know, you're awesome. I mean, just top-tier guest. Um, it's not often, and this isn't a I mean, look, I deal with scientists every day. It it's not a knock on scientists, but it's not often that you get that crossover of you know, really, we could hear the experience that you have fishing, and how your, your education and research is driving, you know, that and being able to explain it to people to where they can understand, because most of the time, that's where the disconnect is. So all all Mm -hmm. I can say is like, I'm if i'm speechless that says something ask blank. um so thank amen you. to that amen to that right well thank i you. appreciate
2: it i'd i'd love to come back and you know there's all kinds of other controversial topics we can talk about like how i'll tell you a fish cannot sense barometric pressure
0: that's it oh that you're works you're not works invited anymore you just you just ruined <laughs> your invite because that is that is one <laughs> of the pillars of my knowledge
2: all right uh, and, it's, and my lived experience tells me that can't be right, but my sensory biology experience tells me there's absolutely no receptor for it.
0: Well, we you, need, about you, this. Need, you need to go back to school, young man, because that's and a, a simple BS movement of one
2: meter it. in the water column would mask a five category five hurricane.
0: Uh, he crushed he crushed
1: me like 20 years ago. I've had this conversation with him. And I want you to come back so we can talk no. about this. Yeah. Know. And there's
2: scientists that disagree. There's scientists who have tracking data who show fish, sharks bugging out before a hurricane. But how do they know? How do they know? I mean, this is why I love science is because we're always learning. And when I say they can't, it means we don't understand how they could. It means we haven't figured it out how they do it yet or whether they Real. do it at all. Well, uh, I have, my, I have my pet theories about how it's happening and have to do with infrasound, really low frequency sound. But, um, it's uh it's one of those holy grails that I'll spend my whole career chasing you know? well,
0: I'm not and, sleeping tonight, God damn it, nice <laughs> what the hell that was a yeah, I spent half my life I spent eighty percent of my life basing my fishing trips on that
2: right yep. right I mean your lived experience every fisherman's lived experience says that as a storm's coming on, the fishing gets good, and then afterwards when it's that clear, bright sunny and twenty degrees cooler. Everything shuts down. That's your lived experience. How do they know? How do they measure it? Well, this is as a sensory biologist. I know the organ systems. I know how they measure. I can use electric and medical techniques to measure what they measure. There, there is no receptor for this. So it's dovetailing on another sense somehow, or some component of it that isn't the barometer is what they're measuring. I think it's the it's the latter. You know, it's not just the barometer that's changing. It's the light level. It's you're the low level You're weather. killing it's it, sound.
0: Andre, because. This is another podcast, man. It's
2: I know, good, I know. Well, It's a good teaser. Cut all that part out. Yeah, cut all that part out. It's a, yeah, good,
0: it's a, out. It's a good teaser. So, man, uh, I cannot thank you enough for hopping on, and I can't thank Blaine enough for convincing you to hop on and host this. And I guess I got to say it again. Comments at saltwaterguidesassociation.org. If they're too high level and our, my feeble brain can't answer it, I'll, I may – forward to comment to to our wonderful guest today and maybe he can answer it for you if he has time between fishing and chasing twins and working but we're gonna have him on here again uh because this was this one of the best podcasts we ever did and i want to thank both of y'all immensely and uh and wow i'm like wow so thank y'all and to our listeners we'll see y'all all on again, real shame. Andre, thanks, man. Love you, buddy.
2: Thank you all for having me. Thank you for for, uh, the chat. And thank you guys for supporting science, recreational fishery science.